Hello, and welcome to the Professional Insights Podcast, Season 5, Episode, I've got no idea. Um, my name 19 is and 20, Brandon. I just got my invoice. Is it, is it 19? <laughs> I got my invoice, so I know. 19 and 20, thanks. Uh, we got, I think we got one more till the end of, uh, end of March, and then we're done the year because our fiscal starts. My name is Brandon Curry. I'm Jeff Collins. Josh Bond. And Trevor Lindy. Um, I guess I'm Ben well, Sledge. You are Ben <laughs> Sledge. Now, now award-winning author. No. Uh, four, four tours? No, I only had two, but they were very long <laughs> tours. Right. Yeah. Okay. And um, I, well, we're going to get on that too. I want to, oh, there's so much I want to touch on. Um, and uh, uh, how you're would you like us cat. to, you are a sergeant, you are a staff sergeant. So how would you like us to address you? Do you want it to be, and I, we're being serious about this. Is it staff? We're not going to use your nickname because that's comes from the book. And I just think that also ties into the theme of the book. So I'm going to kind of leave that there, which is a kick-ass nickname. Um, how would you like us to do Sergeant Sledge or staff Sergeant or? Well, unless you retire, you don't get to retain your rank. So, I mean, unless it's, it becomes an honorific and, and the military is like, Hey, uh, you know, you get your, we're going to, we're going to let you have that. So it's just typically everyone calls me sledge. Now I, I, you know, I have my former Sergeant stuff on there and people will refer to me as that sometimes, but it's, it's not accurate. So sledge is fine. It's a badass name, okay. so I'd, I'd be happy awesome. to have that name too. Yeah, I mean, I sounded like name. a GI Joe character while oh, I was yeah. in the military. I was Sergeant Sledge. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, uh, it's almost like a made-up name. Eh? It's it's killer name. It well, what's funny is I went on a clearing operation one time with a guy named whose last name was Slaughter, and he was a sergeant. So it was Sledge and Slaughter that were the two guys leading an entire platoon of Marines. Like it and, should be and, basically. <laughs> well, they were all like, we're going to kill everyone. And I was like, eh, eh, wrong, wrong mindset. No, yeah, just yeah, names yeah. do not translate to. <laughs> well, it's almost like it's preordained just because your name was chosen, right? It's there you yeah. go. Um, we, uh, for everyone that's listening. So again, um, uh, Ben Sledge, I'm just going to read a little bit from, I just wanted people to understand. And yes, I got to get my cheaters on. And yes, I'm old enough now. I need some bloody cheaters. Hey, when did this is. happen here? Curry? Oh, this happened like the last couple of weeks there, bud. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, welcome to the club. My, my wife's going yeah, through it right now. She's <laughs> she's realizing she's got to do it too. It's great. Yeah, it is. It is what it is. Oh, I just accepted yeah. it. It is what it is. Yeah. Um, just buy five or six pairs there. Throw them around. Oh, this, yeah, right. Yeah. I'm telling <laughs> you. Christ, I'm telling I know. You. I, I got it. I got it. I don't. One in I your car, care. one in your office. <laughs> it's going to be bad. Um. Ben, up, it gets worse. Uh, you are the recipient of the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, two Army commend- uh, co- Commendation Medals, served in Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, and um, basically, it goes into on returning home. He began to work in geopolitical intelligence and then moved into mental health. Um, certified in crisis response, trauma care, and suicide prevention. You continue to work with vets. You live in Colorado with your wife, daughter, and son, and you can go to his website, benjaminsledge.com, which we will be promoting throughout the entire two hours here. Um, And uh, please, if anyone's, well, we know everyone's going to be watching, drop your comments um, in in here if you have any, and we'll answer them live. Uh, Buy a book, support a vet. Go to amazon.ca, 
by the um, but rookie. Do you mind putting up the book title for everybody? That way they can kind uh, we can see it. That's a, just sure a badass we'll picture. About. Like, look at that. <laughs> Where <laughs> cowards go to die. That's great. Bruce, Bruce Willis ask. No. Yeah. Right. Yeah. More badass than Bruce Willis, I think. More badass than Bruce Willis. No, Bruce is bad. Real life Bruce Willis. (laughs) Real life Bruce Willis. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. As Canadians, we Um, salute you and we appreciate what you've done. Well, we appreciate the Canadians who who served in the the global war on terror as well. You guys have the longest sniper shot recorded in history right now. And I bet you he apologized right after he did it too, right? (laughs) He did not. Hey, wasted time, babes. Thanks very much for logging in. Thanks for saying Ben is a badass. Please buy the book, Amazon.ca. So here's another thing, too, a lot of people don't know. So, Ben, there's a lot of ignorance surrounding writing a book. So let's talk to people on, you know, the like just a brief process and what that means. And then let's go into your background Um, briefly. You don't sit down and just write it in one sitting and then it's done? Yeah. So what does it mean? Like, how do you get on the Wall Street Journal and stuff like that? Uh, so th- it's difficult. Uh, so let me let me explain. So a lot of people are out there calling themselves best-selling authors. They're not. Um, th- th- what happens is is they they'll get on Amazon, they'll release a book, and they'll have their friends and family or whoever will buy it. It'll jump up the rankings in a specific category, right? Uh, so for, say for instance, for mine. Mm-hmm. Mine for several weeks was on like uh, number one in Iraq history, number one in Afghan war memoirs, number one in like memoir, whatever. And then you're like, oh, look, I'm a best-selling author now. Well, it's because Amazon updates all their their rankings hourly. And depending on how many sales you get, you can get the specific categories. Now, that does not mean that you are technically this best-selling author, whatever, because the real rankings are the New York Times bestseller, the Wall Street Journals, uh, the big ones. And the way that you hit those lists is you basically need to sell two to 3,000 copies within the first month. Now, here's the reality of the situation. Most uh, based on recent Department of Justice inquiry to a merger between Simon and Schuster and Penguin Random House, which are the largest publishing imprints in the United States and just worldwide. um, They discovered that 90 percent of authors never sell more than 2000 copies ever in the history of of their print being in addition. So the reality of the situation is to hit those lists is is kind of very difficult as well as getting um, you can be an award winning author. And even then, it's hard to hit those lists. But the, the time, effort, and energy that it goes into writing a book is, is difficult because of the simple fact that you're conducting research, you're having to sit down and write. And if you're like me and you have kids, you have to figure out a time when you can do it to where they're not like barging into the room and, and you know, getting out of your, your train of thought. So the way that I did it, I had a full-time job. Um, you know, because uh, typically writing a book does not pay the bills. Uh, I'm just going to be honest, like mm. unless you're Stephen King or J.K. <laughs> Rowling, yeah. that's it. Then you've made it uh, like even um, N.K. Jesmond, who wrote the Broken Earth trilogy. She is a, a Hugo winning Nebula the whole nine years. She had it to keep a full time job, even though her books were winning all these awards and, and hitting certain lists. Um, until she signed a seven-figure contract with like Sony Pictures to adapt, hers was the time when she was finally able to move into full-time writing. So it's it's oftentimes for 
not not to burst anybody's bubble. You should write because you you love it, not because you want to be a, a bestseller or whatever. But I would wake up every single morning around 530 in the morning and I'd write for an hour and it took about a year to complete an 80,000 word manuscript. Granted, when I finished, it was about 100,000 words, which is about the size of a fantasy novel. And I had to cut about 20,000 words. So that's 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 wow. the reality of writing. True to anything, though, you should do what you love. Right. Makes it easier. Yeah. That, I mean, I think people get the wrong idea where they're like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be this musician or I'm going to do, I'm going to be a, a, you know, writer or whatever. And my writing mentor, he was, uh, he's one of my best friends. He's actually a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And I asked him how he became, you know, a writer. And he said, well, first you have to ask me how many times I've been rejected. And I was like, oh, okay. And, uh, and so he goes, he took me through this thing and he's like, right now in our city, there's probably like a hundred thousand people that want to become writers of that hundred thousand people, 50,000 people will actually sit down and write something. It'll be terrible because it's their first time. And then from there, that number will continue to dwindle until there's maybe actually a hundred people that are serious about writing. And he said, now ask me how many times I've been rejected. I was like, how many times have you been rejected? He's like close to 600. And I was like, D-. and so for him, it was just perseverance pays off. Hmm. Hmm. You know, and so that means basically our, the Cryer Media Network, we have thousands of people that subscribe to YouTube channels and podcasts throughout the network and stuff. So we actually have the power to make you a bestseller. Uh, I hope so. That would be dope. <laughs> and so come on, everyone. It's 35 would, bucks Canadian. <laughs> love it. That would be sick. Yeah. So anyone that's watching in America, click this link right down at the bottom. I don't know how you do that, but just click the link. That's what I did. And um, you can go to Amazon. And buy it. And, uh, you know, it's $35 Canadian uh, with prime free shipping. And then uh, that's like $5 American. So like, I, I'm, you know, I'm a finance guy. I'm sure that the, the, the exchange works out that way. Something like that. Um, but and on top of that, you also have made your um, just for our podcast and, and our listeners and stuff. You've made your website at benjaminsledge.com <coughs> to get a signed copy. Um, also, you've made that live. To, for our podcast you can get a personalized signed copy like i did right here there you go is, oh, right there that was really nice of you to do that see i didn't Thank know about you. that i bought it i bought it way earlier than curry so i was reading it a long time ago i i'd like to say one thing too don't just buy the book to support a vet which you should do anyways it's a hell yep. of a book it's a hell, hell of a book, book. And the way I've always looked at books myself, I, I love reading books and all that, but I'm particular about books. Usually they find me, I don't find them. And if I like a I book, <laughs> I can't stop until it's done. And if I don't like a book, honestly, I don't finish it. And I finished this book in four sittings. It was a hell of a book. It was a great story. I think the biggest way to encompass the book is pretty much the first, the first page on here. It says, for Kyle and for my children who will one day ask, Daddy, what was it like to go to war? This is what it feels like it would be like to go to war. Hell of a book, Ben. Hell, Sledge, I'm sorry. Hell, hell of a book. I loved it. Sledge sounds um, badass, so I'll call you Sledge if you like that. But uh, it was a hell of a um, book. And the Canadian nickname can be Sledgy, right? If you played hockey, yeah. you Sledgy, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I've already apologized fair. once here. I and said like, sorry. <laughs> you act like a hockey player, so it's perfect. So it's, it's fine. You're great. And you're in shape like one, too. It's good. Uh, talking animals. And the sniper would apologize for the kill. Nah. They'd apologize for taking that split second too long, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, I think I think it's, you know, 
in, in the last chapter, I, I we're going to, you know, cover the book, but I, I want people to buy it. I, I, I second Jeff's um, comments. Um, and that is basically, I'm not much of a reader myself. Uh, like it takes me a lot to get into a book. Um, like Jeff, I, I, it was me for more. It was like four or five sittings, but still finished the book. Uh, one of our, one of our readers, um, uh, one of our, uh, guests and people who avidly watched the podcast, uh, Jeff Chesbro, uh, former guest. And Chesley! he also bought us, he also bought a signed copy as well. Um, and, uh, Yes, Jeff, I finished the book, buddy. Okay. Cause he he's only for 25. He's not gonna believe you. He's not gonna believe you. No, I know he won't believe me, but that's okay. He'll try. I'm gonna give you a test later on. Make sure you've read every chapter. I don't want to know this bullshit like you. You skimmed <laughs> okay. it. You've been read last, every word. I did not skim it. You can I'm giving it to my I'm, well, I'm we're going away. I'm I'm gonna give it to my wife because my wife isn't is a psychotherapist. And I said to her, I go like, Hey, if you ever do get a vet, or if you ever do get one, someone with severe PTSD, I go, this book would really help you in your practice to kind of give you context to how to handle and what these people are going through. And I just think if anybody, and I, and I said this to you, Sledge, I go, my person, you know, after thanking a vet for their service, there's only two questions and two questions only you should ever ask a vet. And that is, what are you drinking? And can I buy you a drink? That is it. That is, if they want to talk about the war, then ask them about the war. Don't just, this is not a, you know, we were joking before we went live on air. This is not call of duty to these people. They, you know, these people have, these men and women. I also can't stand when a politician says they've served their country. No, you didn't. You worked for the country. The vets served the country. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, it's <clears> not. Your life it's is not, on the line, you serve. Yeah, you serve. When your life is on the line, you sacrificed. And my God. Ben, what you've gone through. And I, it was just, I'd read a chapter and I'd be laughing like all the pranks that you make. Cause it just reminded me of the hockey dressing room. This is this stuff that guys do even, you know, in unisex washrooms, it was hilarious. I was laughing going, yeah, I can see myself doing that. And then like the next chapter, it was like a gut punch yeah. and you're like, Oh my God. And I had to Everyone stop. And I had to just, <laughs> I'm like, it was a roller coaster. I was, I was like almost on tears. I was laughing. I was snickering. Uh, Jeff, I don't know about you. What were you like while you read the book? Oh, I loved it. I, I, I liked every part. There was funny parts, but I, to me, it was a redemption story for you at the end, which I really liked. I don't want to ruin it or anything like that. But I was like, when's the movie come out? I, I want yeah. to see the movie. And I don't think the movie's ever as good as the book. And you said Harry Potter before. <laughs> Harry I, I, Potter I would have, they'd have when's to the movie? Mini- mini series for this one it'd have to be oh like yeah even better even better it's it's mini too many too many characters and and you yeah. know timelines competing with each other so a modern get him in touch with with more serious yeah yeah hey, i would love to see in touch with ives yeah. like canadian icon ryan reynolds who's looking to buy in the ottawa senators which we fully support ryan if you're watching our podcast fully support you buying the senators and love you owning the uh, the Premier League team. What? Why are you shaking your head? Everyone has always said, like, I, I love I remind your comment, Ryan Reynolds, like my humor. I'm like Deadpool in a. Yeah, you've, got, is, you've got the Matthew McConaughey Reynolds? voice, though, too. I can hear the Everyone says that. Voice. Everyone yeah. says I'm Matthew McConaughey. I get oh, that yeah. all the time. I hear the you voice. You buy right the away. rights to this right book right. and make this movie. Reynolds, yeah. buy the book, make this movie. And it's okay. great title, you know, great title watching, too. Like that's listening. an intriguing title, right? He's there. Probably not watching, yeah, but if anyone knows we, the guy, we can should you definitely send talk about the title at some point. Yeah, well, how'd you come What's up with that? the title? 
Go. So yeah. uh, the title, so, so, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but um, so while I was in Iraq, you have a lot of downtime, so you read a lot or you watch bootleg movies. So uh, we, I, I started really reading voraciously while I was overseas, and I picked up the book I Am Legend uh, by Richard Matheson. Now, it is nowhere anywhere close to the Will Smith movie. That one's trash. Um, the I Am Legend is about the last man on Earth, and everybody else has been basically turned into vampires. Uh, so he's this last man on Earth, but the, la- the last three words of the book are I Am Legend. And I was like, I closed the book and I was like, that was freaking awesome. If I ever read a book, I'm, I'm going to do something similar. And so I had this idea in my mind of, and the lesson that I learned in war uh, that translated into life is that in life or in war, you will either live or die as a coward, or you're going to have to kill the inner coward that's inside of you. But either way, a coward has to die. So for me, when I when I first left for war, I was really afraid, and, and I I let a lot of cowardice eke into my system. Uh, I did things that degraded the morale of my teammates and my company, um, and it was just because I was afraid. But in order to do my job, I had to I had to kill that inner coward so I could become selfless and serve them and serve something higher than me. So that coward had to die, or if I had done the opposite, I would have just died a coward. And so for me, I realized that in life and in war, you will either live as a coward and die that way, or you'll kill that inner cowardice, the thing that is that is stripping you of your humanity, of that selflessness towards your, your fellow man, and that coward will have to die, and that way you thrive. And so uh, I kind of end the book with um, kind of the homage to the the you know, the, the title, uh, where cowards go to die. Yeah. I just checked it and you did. Yeah. <laughs> I just checked the book. That's, That's powerful. That's powerful. That's so powerful. <clears throat> oh my God. Um, That's everything stripped could, down, uh, down to a sentence basically. And you got to bang on. Cause I would, I would not make it very long in war. <laughs> I, think I, might, I might have a panic attack and die on the plane there. That's, that's the way I would think I would happen, right? I'm, and I'll well, it's always so funny because you guys are like, you guys have been through such a lot. And I think about the guys I served with and it was just so normal to us. Like, yeah. and now everyone's like, good God. And I think about my granddad, you know, he's a paratrooper in World War II. That was just normal to them. And we looked at him and we're like, eh, but. So I, I, I got a question you for you, Sledge. I like how you wrapped yeah. it up though, right? I like how you yeah. wrapped it up because I think even in day-to-day life, we genuinely walk amongst 95% cowards. Sure, sure. I think um, it's gotten easier to not deal with your issues. Like, I think that's why yep. we're seeing such a mental health crisis and even among the veterans. And that's, I think that's the most devastating part for me is watching the veteran community suffer so much. And here's here's what's crazy to me, is we literally have veterans walk into the Department of Veteran Affairs and they go, you are strong enough to fight a war, but you're not strong enough to be a productive member of human society anymore. So we're going to put you on mood-altering drugs that put you in an alternate reality because now we think you're weak. And what's courageous about that? We should be confronting what we went through, which is what I had to do. And I had to go through a lot of counseling, a lot of therapy to get to that point. But you can either stay in that situation and die the coward, or you can face the trauma and the hurt and discover healing um, from that. And that, and that's the travesty. I think in that transcends also into the civilian population, unfortunately. 
um, which your you message know, is you've got to talk about it, right? That's that's the big yeah. message, right? Is you just Open have up. you have to you have to talk about it. And that's what you talk about at the end of the book, right? Where you start meeting your fellow veterans and all that, right? After to discuss mm-hmm. it, rather than not see them again until a funeral, you're starting to see them on a yearly basis, right? Which I think is yeah. a powerful well, message right there. It it was a funeral that changed everything, but that's jumping ahead. So let's let's yeah. get back to the yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, let's let's just go into one of the quotes by um, that's at the very end of the book. Um, you know, that kind of summarizes everything, and then we'll kind of walk through it all. Which is William Tecumseh Sherman, and I, I'm going to read it verbatim so I don't get it wrong. Uh, I am tired and sick of war. Its glory is all moonshine. It is only those who have neither fired a shot nor heard the shrieks and groans of the wounded who cry aloud for blood, for vengeance, for desolation, war is hell. And it just kind of summarizes what, you know, uh, yeah, you know what, I'm going to group politicians into this as well. Like the people who say, let's go to war, let's send these men and women into war, you know, or whatever. And the people who are like, yeah, but they've never picked up a gun. You know, they've never, they played Call of Duty. Um, But I found, typically I'm a big business book guy, right? And I I told you that before. But this, like, and very much Bondo touched on this. There was so many bridges into the business world about the coward piece and about how you can persevere. And so it was just really cool. Um, So I'm going to ask a couple, but so for anyone that's watching, any questions, please drop them in the chat. Again, please, please go to amazon.ca and buy the book um, or amazon.com and buy the book wherever you are. Uh, buy a book, support a vet, and it's one hell of a book. Um, so your whole family, uh, great-grandfather, like it, there's a lineage. So take, 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 take our listeners um, through that and on, uh, yeah. Everything. Yeah, so my... In the military, we joke that military service runs in the blood. And so we started like tracing my lineage and my grandmother, my maternal grandmother has traced her side of the family back as far as a general who served under Napoleon Bonaparte. Wow. So you have that. And then from there, I started researching, like getting on ancestry.com and looking at like who my ancestors were from like the Sledge clan. And then also the Whitson clan, which is my mother's side. Uh, and all of us had fought in basically every single major conflict in American history, from the Revolutionary War to the Civil War. We were fighting each other at that point because the Sledge family was from the South. Whitson was from the North. Uh, <laughs> kind of funny how that works out. Um, and then, you know, my great grandfather, Cortland Joseph, uh, he fought in World War One, I, I believe. And then my other great grandfather uh, from my uh from my mom's side, he fought in World War One uh, in trench warfare, and he died because of uh, the the complications that of uh, his service overseas. My grandfather was a paratrooper with the 82nd Airborne um, during. Uh, he was one of the first paratroopers to to go through like the program training. Still got uh, all of his like pictures. I mean, it literally looks like Bandit Brothers. It's crazy. Um, so he fought in World War II. Um, my grandfather. Uh, from my dad's side was also in World War II, but he stayed stateside at Fort Bliss. But uh, my great uncle, which is his brother, stormed the beaches in the Pacific with mm-hmm. the with the army during uh, World War II. 
Uh, both my uncles uh, were in the Army uh, during Vietnam. My dad tried to enlist into the Air Force, but was uh, during Vietnam, but was disbarred because he had asthma. And then uh, both my brother and I have served, and we have the distinct feeling that our kids will probably serve as well. So oh, wow. that's that's the history. <laughs> wow. It just it runs in the blood. We don't know why. So like, wait, at, the- you know, all his kids. I, I cower, and I mean, like all of us are fathers on this show right now. How are you going to, reading this book? How, how are you going to do that? Like, how young, are you going to young be men able go to, to look- war so that their children don't have to? And unfortunately history repeats the cycle. Wow. And have you thought about that? Have you, are, are you still thinking about that? Are you still trying to digest that? Like, because you, you, you jokingly and facetiously have said that. But how do you close I, that I, loop? How, yeah, how do you close that loop? How do you stop the cycle? Or uh, evidently, I don't think we'll ever be out. Of, yeah, what, what, have you thought about that? And maybe, and I just put, push us back if we're going to somewhere you don't want to. Because I know that I would ball my eyes out if, if that happened. So Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the thought of even losing your children is devastating. Just thinking about devastating. it. Devastating. It's terrible i think i've i've come to tears before just even thinking about it my kids are yep. fine like they don't have health no issues or anything. but um part of being a parent is letting your kids grow into their own person and who exactly who they want to be and you you can do the best that you can and there's there's pride in there you know i my grandfather was so proud of me and my brother the day we graduated from basic training in the army he was just proud Um, and I know I would be too, like, I would love to see even my daughter become like one of the first, like there's so few women in like the special operations community. I'd love for her to go to like ranger school and and go through the gauntlet and and have her prove that, but she may not, you know, she may want to go. She right now, she wants to be a musician (laughs) uh, and they may not join the military and that's okay. Um, I think the way that you end the cycle specifically is, Uh, And I write about this in the end of my book because I I talk about the debacle that Iraq and Afghanistan became 20 years of war for like literally what, you know, and it's devastating to us. Oil. Um, It's foreign policy is really what I went down to, (laughs) you know, politicians again. Yeah, it's politicians. And again, the greatest travesty um, that we see is that we send our young to die based on the whims of men and women that have never served in the killing fields. Like you have old men and old women whose fingers are in the cookie jar of lobbyists and corporations that go, Oh, we need to protect our interests (laughs) overseas with Kellogg Brown and root and the rest of everything else that went on there, even from, you know, the, the mercenary contracts that we did with Blackwater to, to triple canopy to Dynacor, it was all state department sponsored. And you, if you look, if you go to opensecrets.org, which is a non uh, it's a bipartisan uh, nonprofit that looks into the finance finances of our politicians in America uh, you'll just see that all of them are being funded by these lobbyist groups. And a lot of our foreign policy moves are not specifically to make the world a better place, but it's so that these politicians can advance their careers, become rich in their careers, have, you know, whatever they want. 
So my solution, and you fix this, and people would hate this, is it's simple. It's you have mandatory service for two years, the same way that Israel and Germany used to have. And then two, you cannot serve as a congressional representative unless you've served. And that's it. Sorry. Because you're going to be a lot less likely to send your buddies and your young kids off to war when you've experienced it yourself. And that's totally that, true. Yeah. So that's, I, that's how you close the cycle. Will it ever happen? Hell no. So, but that's um, the solution and it would work. <laughs> I mean, it's just, we listen, we live, we live different lives, man. Right. Plain and simple. You're an American. I'm a Canadian. We have the benefit of being your neighbor. You know what I mean? In that sense. So we don't grow up necessarily with the same mentality not that, listen, I'd be the first one that I've got two young girls. I'm the type of person that I'll grab a gun and I'll go. That's just my personality, right? If yeah, same. If, if my kids are, are, are being stripped of something, listen, at the end of the day, I'll do what I got to do. But I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to do it. I don't grow up thinking about it. And, and, and it's... And it's a, some, something that I think us Canadians benefit from that we really don't pay enough homage to uh, because we really don't. Maybe that's why we say sorry all the time, right? <laughs> it's, it's possible, right? Well, it's, it's difficult it's not, because... Not, not to say the... that we wouldn't back you guys or there wouldn't be a good, good mitful of... Canadians that would be backing you guys, but it, it, it's just, yeah. it's not, it's not as ingrained, right? Like it's just, I don't think it's ingrained different. in, I don't think the warrior ethos is ingrained in the majority of the population in the United States, less than 1% of the, so here, here's a reality check for you. 13% <laughs> of the population in the United States is, is black. Uh, and then you have Asian and then American Indian and, uh, you know, Alaskan native is about 1.3%. Guess who served in 20 years of war? Like what percentage of Americans served in that? It's 0.86%. We are the smallest minority in U.S. history. And yet, so like the warrior ethos is not ingrained into the American society. I think violence is, um, unfortunately. And, and the thing is, is we, we have this tendency to glorify it with either video games or, you know, movies or, or whatever it is. But, but when you see death and destruction up close and personal, that will F you up really bad. Yeah, uh, we have we have some questions. So first of all, thank you, everyone, for tuning in again. Please go to Amazon.ca or to the book uh, where cowards go to die and. Um, Buy a book, support a vet, um, and also you're also supporting a vet who takes care of other vets as well with PTSD. So that is a that's a big thing. It's not just huge giving someone a livelihood. You're giving you're, you're allowing this you're, you're allowing uh, Sledge to to continue his work. Um, so wasted time games. Thanks, like th- these people all the, that I'm listing. They're they're constant listeners and watchers, and they always ask questions, and we really appreciate it because without them, we would not have a podcast. Wasted time came at games. Uh, kids change everything. Totally agree. You mad, bro. That's a great idea, which is the whole uh, politicians can't be politicians unless they've served. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but he did say, they said, uh, that children quote, got me. That's insane. Talking animals. How has your experience as a war veteran influenced your writing? And what was the most challenging aspect of writing about your experiences? Great bloody question. Oh, that's a great question. Can, um, I, can I just tag on to that sledge? Because sure. part of my questions writing down here was, in along this lines, you're, you're a very creative guy. How does that impact or did it impact you on the field? So it's just kind of maybe a two-parter. Yeah. So uh, let, we'll go into my background real quick because this is important. This will be the start to the book. Um, I grew up as a kid. You know, I'm I'm a like on the cusp of Gen X, millennial. They call us Zennials or the Oregon Trail generation. So I had an analog childhood and um, grew up in the 1980s. Uh, my dad uh, was one of the original guys who worked with AIDS patients when nobody knew mm. what was going on. Which um, is so moving in the book. Yeah. And so he, they, and the reason why is my, my dad was a Christian. I was raised in a Christian household. Uh, and we'll get, we'll get into, we, we have to talk about spirituality and war because it's very important and we miss out on that. Um, Carl oh, yeah. Marlantis, who's a New York times bestseller, uh, who wrote what it's like to go to war really kind of influenced a lot of my thought process throughout this. But, um, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a young kid in the eighties and he's working with AIDS patients and everybody thinks it's airborne. You can get it by touch. Um, and he's, his faith informs him that he should take care of the poor and the marginalized. And so he's working with predominantly, you know, homosexual men and women and drug addicts. And the church at the time is like hell to the no. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the, the populace at large is scared to death that they're going to get it. And my dad knows better, you know, he's, he's a nurse. He understands like how this stuff works. It's like, you know, you, it, you'd have to get it through blood, you know, sexual transmission, stuff like that. Uh, and, but we, my family kind of becomes this social pariah outcast, um, where at one point I walk in to the kitchen and my mom's crying because her friends are deciding whether or not they can stay in contact with my mom and my dad, because my dad works in the age wing of the hospital <laughs> and he's uh, trying to help out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's trying to do the Christian thing. Yeah. He's the trying Jesus to do the right thing. thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, I walk in there and I remember I'm, I'm little, I have my little GI Joe character in my hand, which is kind of funny. It was foreshadowing, you know? <laughs> um, and I go, dad, why can't you just not help these people? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, if we don't, who, who will? And he goes, how could I possibly call myself a Christian if I didn't? And that, that really stuck with me, but I was I was always the the creative kid growing up, like, because my dad was my dad, in addition to being a nurse, like he played piano, he sang, uh, he loved to draw and he was a very good artist. And so I picked up on all those things. And so I enrolled it in as many art classes as I could. I loved music and I loved, I loved metal. Um, and so at the height of like the eighties, you had this thing called satanic panic that kind of kicked in. And oh, it was yeah. like, if you do, if you listen to metal, you're going to worship the devil and like kick puppies and do man. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I kind of became ostracized in, in that respect. And because I was like, I loved art and I loved, you know, drawing. And at the time I was a, sh a shy kid who would often, you know, stare at his feet. Uh, I got picked on a lot. Um, and so, you know, and then I got into the, like the grunge and the metal scene. And because I had, I, I wore my hair like long down to my shoulders. I was in, you know, band t-shirts and Cobain. jeans. Yeah, it was Cobain mm, and Nirvana. Nirvana 
Soundgarden and Soundgarden mm-hmm. and and you know Metallica's Black Album and then Pan- Pantera, Sepultura, uh, you know mm-hmm. uh, Anthrax, all great, like the big all four, great, you know, Megadeth, so all great ones. Uh, I started getting picked on, and you know, uh, kids are cool back then, and they they would call you, you know, art faggot, skate fag, you know, stuff like that. Um, and eventually, I just felt like I and I got picked on and beat up. I felt like I had to change who I was, and so I chopped off all my hair and got blonde tips and started dressing like Abercrombie and Fitch, uh, <laughs> so that I yeah, so that I could like fit in. Um, yeah. And I I figured I was like being creative is not acceptable, and. Uh, for me, a lot of it was, is I was like, well, you know, we do the military in our family and I had to figure out a way to pay for college. Cause my parents were like, you're going to college. So I was like, I guess I'm going to join the army. Um, and you know, never in a million years did I think that I was going to go to war. Cause I joined in 1999, that was peacetime army under Bill Clinton. And so, you know, my first, my first like two years are, are like, we're barbecuing, we're, we're, you know, we're having camping trips which we there are you know bivouacs is what we used to call them back back in the day to where you're doing exercises out in like the forest and stuff and and at the end of the day you know you're barbecuing and drinking beer it's so chill it was so much it was fun and it was mm. just kind of dumb and i had enlisted in a special operations detachment not knowing what the hell it was but just because i had uh scored high enough on my 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 deal and then the towers fell and that uh, really changed my life. And mm. the creative guy had to become like kind of more of, of the warrior. But I was still, you know, deep down inside. I, I always knew I was I had that creative soul like that loved music, that loved art, um, that loved writing and poetry and, and stuff like that. But I was like, that guy is unacceptable. So I, I have to embrace this warrior aspect. And so um, I in 2002 two, I got sent to um, Defense Language Institute Foreign Language Center in Monterey, California, because in our skill set, we have to know another language as well. And, uh, and graduated from there. And then three months later, they were like, yo, you're going to Afghanistan. And I, I was really afraid. Um, yeah. And we had just invaded Iraq, too. So mm-hmm. and I knew we were invading Iraq because my entire unit was already gone but I, because i was in language training you know i didn't get called up because i was already on orders and then the next thing i know um you know i'm like oh okay well i'm going to i probably going to iraq and they're like you're going to afghanistan and i'm like okay so i get out i arrive in afghanistan and and uh, i'm really afraid uh, i'm super afraid because i'm deep down i'm still the creative kid that that's trying mm-hmm. to put on this brave face and this bravado and I'm kind of, you know, fratty and the whole deal. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to be the man. Um, but I try to get out. Uh, I, I get attached to what's called a civil affairs team alpha. Um, and, and that was my job uh, it, where you work with like the local indigenous population, you're a geopolitical expert, language expert, the, the whole nine yards. And uh, they, um, my, my team sergeant, a guy named Paul Gonzo Gonzalez, he's not, ironically he is not um hispanic he's his <laughs> wife is what's funny is his wife is hispanic he is a pasty white <laughs> irish american <laughs> so it's it, so it's super funny but this dude i mean he's the ice man dude he's just and still one of my best friends to this day um but like for him war was just something he inherently understood so he wanted to go to the border to like this really dangerous place where like all these stars and explosions were. 
And I was like, I do not want to go there. So I try getting out and he, I wake up from a nap when we arrive in, in Kandahar while we're getting ready to, to go out to our respective Ford operating bases. And he's pissed. And, you know, he's put together his rifle and slams it down and it's looking at me. And I'm just like, uh-oh. He's like, um, walk with me, Hollywood. And Hollywood was my nickname. And we'll, we'll, we'll pass over, we'll gloss over that for now. You can ask in a minute because this, yeah. this is the important thing. So uh, we go out to this area and we're in Kandahar. And this is like early on in the war effort. It's not like what you see now. So there's just twisted mass of wreckage. And there was this... Uh, area they built this like mass of metal wreckage and somebody had crudely spray painted thunderdome and when soldiers got it beef with each other you just go in there and beat the shit out of one another like just fucking just, just kill them um and so he brings me over near thunderdome and i'm thinking i'm gonna get my ass beat and he he takes this kind of instead of the sergeant voice he takes kind of more of the the soft dad voice and he's like uh he's like hollywood i i, I know you're scared and uh I'm scared too. He said, I'm scared to lose it, you know, leaving my wife and kids behind. Um, but I need you. I need you out there. You've trained for this, you know what you're doing. Um, and we're going to get all, all on a helicopter tomorrow and we'll all come back together, but I need you. And, um, and that, that really changed things for me. And I, I went out to the border and started seeing combat and I actually really thrived well in the combat environment found that I liked it. Um, Cause there was just like this adrenaline rush to like being shot at and being rocketed and, and uh, explosions everywhere. And when you come out of it alive, you never feel so alive because you're just inches from death. And it, it made Jeez. life grand and, and exciting in a way that I had never experienced before in my life. But also you begin to like start to lose pieces of your soul while you're out there. Um, so in writing the book, and this is because there's there's stuff I want to talk about, obviously, you know, from the, the ambush that really kind of flipped a, a switch for me. But um, the most challenging aspect about writing my experience as a war veteran was reliving a lot of those traumatic moments. There were just times where I would be writing and I pushed stuff so far down. And like my wife, she just she didn't know any of my stories. Most of my friends knew nothing about my story. They just knew that I had served overseas. Uh, I was an Iraq and Afghan war veteran and I had some awards and that was it. And most of my awards, you can see them behind me now. Most of yeah, them. That's pretty there. sick placard there. My wife got it for me because I had put all my stuff in a box underneath my bed. No, man, um, that's... And that's what we do. We, I was just like, oh, I'm just going to get on with my life or whatever. So when I start reliving this, the trauma resurfaces and there are just times, you know, where my wife would just find me crying. She's like, what is wrong? You know, and I'm having to write about these experiences that I have pushed down so far. And, you know, and because I, I want the, be, the book to be true and I want it to be as brutal and as vulnerable as possible, because the reason why I wrote it the way that I did and the, the, cha the challenging aspect of writing it that way was that everybody else had were Navy SEALs that had written books and that that's fine, you know, but they're writing about the jingoistic, what I like to call war porn a lot of times where it's like, yep. I did this and, you know, I shot these people and, you know, yay America. And I was like, well, what, what happens when you come home and you want to kill yourself because of what you did overseas? Hmm. How do, how do I explain that? How do, how do I explain the things that I did that are going to make me look like a monster 
and everybody not think that I'm a monster. And that was the, that was a really challenging aspect to it all. So. I think you, you, you came out very human, especially when you're talking about yeah. some experiences you saw in Afghanistan. Um, I, I think the biggest thing that, that got me not putting the, the book down was that I kind of felt like if I actually ever got the balls to do something like that, like you're talking, you got to kill the coward, you know, it's a fight or flight kind of thing that mm -hmm. the way you kind of went through and how you talked about like the downtime and, you know, getting the balls to get up and do stuff and then going home and dealing with the trauma, it, you know, it felt very human. And it, it would be something that I think with you talking about, it would probably um, uh, hit a lot of points with other veterans or other people who experience other types of trauma, not just war trauma, right? It's, Right. It's talking about it and making it feel human. And, and you did a great job of doing that. That's what I liked. Yeah. I had a friend who was a victim of sex trafficking, sadly. Um, and she read my book and she, she was like, oh my gosh, this totally hit home. And she's, she's never served. But there was this moment when I was in Afghanistan, it was called the Burmel Massacre uh, is what oh, we yeah. called it. And uh, what had happened is the Taliban and Al Qaeda had teamed up and there was this small village called Burmel. And they went in and massacred everyone. And when I say massacre, they massacred them, decapitated people, uh, threw grenades in homes to where, you know, it's just body parts, organs are strewn in the street. Here's the, here's the crazy part. I can't remember a damn thing about that day, even though I wrote about it in my journal. I have like this weird foggy memory memory where I like pulled a human tooth out of the wall. Ugh. Um, and What's funny is, is like, I didn't even remember Gonzo was there. I thought I was there by myself. And when I wrote about it, he was like, and he was fact checking, you know, his portion and his, his, you know, adaptation of himself in the book. He was like, Hey man, I was, I was at Burmel too. And I was like, Jeez. you were? And he was like, yeah, it was fucked up. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, but what happens is, and I, I later learned about this in, in my, you know, certifications and studies into mental health is when the mind goes through something that traumatic, it'll do stuff mm -hmm. to protect it. So it'll just like, it's like, block it didn't happen. Just block. It's like block. You're not going to think about this stuff. Otherwise you're going to go crazy and insane. Mm -hmm. And so that's what it did. And then, you know, when you get into counseling years later, all these memories start to resurface and you're just like, ah, uh, and so oh, out of that, you know, it was just, yeah. Well, you kept your composure, wrote the book, and it came out perfect. So good, good on you. <laughs> did it, did it you. end up by being therapeutic, therapeutic at all for you to oh, at the end absolutely. of the day to to, to kind of get it on paper and and, and 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 you know I haven't read it yet. I, I'm not a big reader for for pleasure because I do so much. Well, I used to do so much garbage reading for for work, but uh, you know this is something that I'm, I'm. You know the boys have told me a couple of stories that kind of raised the hair on the back of my, my neck that I, I'm a little bit nervous to read some of the shit that you've seen. Um, Dog strikes one. <laughs> just something about uh, little kids or something like that. And yeah, well, anyways, I just, I'll, I'll tell a story from the book. This is, this is, uh, I'll tell two stories from the book real quick. And I, I think this will, this will tie it all together. Um, so there's this like moment that, changed forever who I was. We had gone on this large scale clearing operation. Uh, and I'm in Afghanistan at the time. And uh, we 
we go around, we're, we're traveling th through these dry creek beds called wadis, right? And we would do this thing called clear by fire. And it's where you come around a blind corner. A lot of times they, uh, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda would strategically place themselves on top of a ridge line. So when you came around blind, they would just rain down, you know, hell on you. Um, and so a lot of times the clear by fire, we would shoot over it to see if like, you know, like we would, they would start taking pop shops early on. So we knew an ambush was set up. Well, we didn't do that that, that day. So the front of the convoy goes around the corner, they get attacked. I'm on the back end around the corner already. And I can see up on this ridge line where the fire is coming down from. And so it's like me and my guys, you know, we're up there and we're just, we're firing, but we have no shots. Everything's obstructed. We're just shooting at nothing. And so they tell us to cease fire, you know, save your ammunition. So I'm literally sitting there in this position while the people at the front are getting shot at feeling stupid and useless. And then they call for the mortar team. Well, we're with the mortar team. I am not a mortar man, mind you. But they need help because half of their guys are up at the front. We're in the back half and they're like, hey, help us out. And then so my team sergeant Gonzo, he's he he yells at me and he was like, hey, help us get unload the tubes. So we unload the tubes, hammer them down. You know, they're the green tubes that you see where you drop the and then move. And so they show us what to do. So that, you know, we're, we're doing that. And when I'm like, Hey man, can I shoot these? I, I would love to do it. And they're like, yeah, get some, uh, which is weird. They probably shouldn't have, but they did. And it was awesome. Um, so all of a sudden I'm, I'm in the middle of combat now and I am shooting mortars and rockets up at this ridgeline and shit is exploding everywhere. And I'm like, this is fucking sick. I love this, you know? And I'm, I'm, I'm on an absolute adrenaline, just high at this mm. point. And, uh, you know, they're, they're getting shellacked. Luckily we have an air force enlisted tactical air controller with us. Those are the people that call in, you know, the jets, the Apaches, the whole nine yards. They're like, Hey, we're getting shellacked. Um, we have an Apache on standby. The Apache shows up and that to tell this is the most terrifying thing you'll ever see in your entire life. Uh, they have a 30 millimeter chain gun that just rips up the side of everything. Hellfire missiles, you can literally run or die. That's it. And you're probably going to die. So it, it comes up from behind this mountain and they're like, all right, cease fire. Apache's here. Everybody stops. And you just watch it like, <gasps> like just ash and rubble. And I'm like, good night. So after the firefight's over, I trudge up this hill and we have our interpreter, you know, we're the cultural experts. There's this, this home on top. It's got this, you know, smoke coming out of the top. I remember that. Oh my God. I remember There's the story. this old man with a uh, red oh. bottom stained beard, cultural practice. And uh, he wants to know about his teenage son. And he's, he's like screaming as he's being detained and yelling. They call for me and the interpreter. And I was like, well, where's his son? Like, he, you know, he shouldn't have been. And he was like, well, he was up at the ridgeline shooting at y'all. And I was like, uh-oh. And the old man points to exactly where we've been dumping mortars, you know? And I'm like, oh, shit. So I walk away and, you know, I feel super alive at this point. I remember like what the sky looks like. I remember that smoke coming out of the thing. I remember what the, the gravel and the pebbles on the ground. I can still see it all, you know, in my mind's eye right now. And this, this other soldier walks up to me and he's like, hey, uh, his son's dead. And I was like, well, how do you know? And he said, well, you guys were dumping mortars there. And he goes, I was firing a Mark 19, which is an automatic grenade launcher in that area. And he's like, and then the Apache. And he's like, I went back there and checked. And it's 
there's nothing left, man. And I was like, all right. So I tell the interpreter, I'm like, hey, you, you need to tell him his son's dead. And so he does, and that dude just crumbles, and he lets out this shriek, this wail that, that sounds like a wounded animal, you know. Um, and, like, it, it sticks with you. And, you know, I, I trudge back down the mountain. Uh, we go back to our base, and I write about, you know, my journal. And I, I don't think of anything. I don't think anything of it, you know. I, I think I, I remember writing, like, the sledge that everybody knew – back home is dead and i don't think he's ever coming back um and when i came home as a, a very different person uh and war will do that to you and so um years later we're getting ready to deploy to iraq and this this guy walks up to me um and he's in the book his name's kit mcveigh he's a he's a young private at this point mm-hmm. he's coming with us and he goes hey Gonzo said you guys got to actually launch mortars while you're in combat. Is that true? And I was like, yeah, man. I was like, we did. It was crazy. Um, and without knowing it, the, the memory of the firefight comes back and I start thinking about everything. And, you know, it's like a firing squad, but I'm like, did I kill a kid? Did I kill some 13 year old teenager? And I start to spiral, you know, and I'm like, I can't think about this. We're going to war, screw them, whatever. So I don't think anything, uh, you know, I block that part until I have to deal with it for, for years later. Um, And then I end up in Ramadi, Iraq during the surge. So from 2006 to 2007, Ramadi, Iraq is the most violent city on earth. From 2006 to 2007, it accounted for half of all daily attacks that happened in the country of Iraq. So think about that. Uh, You know, there's Baghdad, there's Basra, there's Tikrit, all these places. They have different attacks going on throughout the day. Half of every single attack that is happening in that country is coming out of the place where I'm at. Then on top of that, half of all deaths for the United States Marine Corps from 2006 to 2007, half of all of them occur in Ramadi. So when you're heading in. Yeah. So I walk in and everyone's like, we call it the meat grinder because it just chews you up and spits you out. And so I end up Christmas. That's tough. Christmas day. Well, Christmas Eve, you know, we're, we're getting find out. And there's a few days before Christmas find out we're going to retake the city and go on this massive clearing operation. we got to end the violent insurgency that's going on there. So this Marine Expeditionary Unit comes in and I meet up with this guy named Major Scott Husing. We're actually really good friends now. He's actually an author too. He wrote a book called Echo and Ramadi. Um, nice. So we call each other one, uh, one another now and we're like, this is wild, man. Like, um, But great dude, great leader, great, uh, great Marine. So he's, he's asking us like all types of questions. He's like, you know, what's the city? How's it permissive? Like what are choke points X, Y, Z? Cause we had been there for a while at this point and we know we're about to walk into the hornet's nest. And so he listens. And on, I think because of that, he saved a lot of his men's life to, to be straight. Um, he, he lost a few while we we're out there, but um, I, I think overall he did such a phenomenal job of leading, but so I'm pouring over maps on like Christmas day and all types of crazy stuff. And and then we go on this clearing operation called Operation Kazarine. We're going to retake this one section of the city while another uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit takes over another part of the city. The, the SEAL team is going to take uh, Corregidor. 
Um, and that's when um, Jocko Willink and like Chris Kyle and their team are there. So we're all in this together, you know? And so we, we start the clearing operation and on Christmas day, I mean, technically it was December 26, but it's like midnight of Christmas day. I walk out the front gate of Camp Ramadi um, with a Marine Expeditionary unit and uh, eventually like all hell breaks loose, of course, because you have a huge presence of, of soldiers walking the streets in the middle of an urban conflict. So we take over houses and eventually we had taken over certain aspects of houses and created these combat outposts to control strategic points in the city. And we end up on this road called millions and it's called millions. It was technically named after a porn star, but, um, uh, <laughs> which is what, yeah, all of our roads were named after porn stars or like Fair enough. <laughs> hot actresses. So we had like, we had like, uh, Lopez was a street, you know, named after JLo. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it was just, wild. we actually had a street called Bacalacadaca street though, from team America. And that, <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was always funny. Cause you would hear somebody come over the radio and be like, we have two military age males going East on Bacalacadaca street. I'd be like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Durka Durka Muhammad Jihad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, we're on this road called Millions. Crazy ass millions fucking millions is because there's a million IEDs on it. It's permanently black. And if a, a black road means it's non-permissive, you cannot travel it. Um, just because of IEDs or, or threat of ambush. This one's permanent. Like for, for a year, it has been black. You do not travel it. The Marines are like, let's go down this road. I'm like, this is a really bad idea. All of a sudden, we start seeing that, you know, uh, they're setting up for an ambush. We alert the Marine Lieutenant. They call into Cop Steel, which is the combat outpost near us that um, First Infantry Division is running. They're like, get the F off that street. You're going to die. Uh, they're like, rally point back here. We have troops in contact across the way. Well, the troops in contact across the way, I figure are my guys. So my team, my four-man civil affairs team, Alpha, had split up. Um, I'm with me and my lieutenant, and then my other buddy, Wagner and Starnes, they're with another Marine Expeditionary Unit. We get to Cop Steel. I go to the rooftop, and I just see these smoke plumes billing in the distance. And the first sergeant of the base is like, hey, um, are you guys with that other platoon? And I was like, yeah. Uh, and he said, well, we got troops in contact right now. And I don't, I don't know their status. Uh, and I was like, shit. Well, all of a sudden we start taking fire, uh, on the rooftop. Uh, and this mosque goes crazy and it starts riling up all the locals, like, you know, kill the infidels, like kind of stuff like that. So we start taking shots. We've got the snipers on the roof. I start shooting down this alleyway near the mosque. Uh, the first sergeant, he's got a high powered scope on his, his M16, his M4, and, you know, he's shooting and he stops and he's like, hold on, ceasefire. And he's like, hey, man, take a look, because I'm running a, a red dot EOTech, which is for close quarters combat. So you can, you know, get shots off yep. quickly. Um, and I look down this alleyway and there's this little girl. She's about six years old. She's in a yellow dress uh, waddling and she's yeah. she's holding munitions. Right. And um, she, she's holding rounds. Yeah. Yeah. Like explosives and shit like that. Um, and that's, that's what they would do. Like the insurgents were really cruel. Uh, they would, they knew that, and they would do this. They would have kids like throw out, we call them pizza box IEDs. Uh, and they were pressure reactive and they looked, they looked like pizza boxes, but they had explosives. And so the charge would connect and then explode and they could just hurl them out. 
and you would see them do it and they would use kids. So you either shot a kid or you didn't. <laughs> and so they were doing the same thing. So she's walking to where the smoke plumes are headed. And like my heart sinks because I know her too. Um, we called her the flower girl. She's a uh, sweet little girl, black hair, uh, you know, dirty all the time, always in this yellow dress. Um, she doesn't know what she's doing. Um, and she would, she would come by the combat outpost to like give us all flowers. She would always give us little yellow daisies. And I, I had her little yellow daisy in my chest rig. Um, and, you know, we would give her hugs and chocolate and stuff like that. And the first sergeant just goes, I mean, you can shoot her technically. She's, she's an enemy combatant now. And I'm like, Oh my God, what do I do? And like, you know, that moment from the firefight in Afghanistan comes back and I'm like, is this the type of person I am? What type of person am I going to be? This is, this will haunt me forever. You know, well, what if Starnes and Wagner die? This will be your fault. Like, it's like, you know, the angel and the demon on the shoulder. Oh, just so much going through your coconut, man, within a split yeah. second. So, um, eventually I, you know, I just, I hand him back the rifle and can't, I don't even say anything. I just, I can't even formulate the words. And he's like, Hey man, you made the right choice. He's like, we, we make choices here every day that are life or death. And you made the right one. Um, he's like, we're Americans. We don't, we don't shoot kids. And I knew that technically wasn't true because like some of my friends who were snipers had kids rush them with AKs or sometimes you have so to. Forth. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was, my team was fighting for their life, uh, mm -hmm. Starnes and Wagner. Um, it was two of them versus like 20 insurgents on a rooftop. Just, and until the Marines backed them up, um, they, it was those two by themselves taking on uh, just a huge thing. And that, and she walked over there and probably reinforced them too. I don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I can speculate at this point, but, um, you know, it, it was moments. not. Yeah, it's moments like that, though, that I think a lot of the civilian populace didn't understand the complexities of what we were forced to deal with overseas. And most, even if you tell them sledge, I don't think that they can, most people can't comprehend, right? Yeah. And so I, I don't, you know, it was stuff like that that you deal with where you know you begin to believe the worst about yourself as far as a, as a human because and that and that's uh that's actually the term that uh, i've discovered in my own you know uh coursework because it was like you know i came back and they're like oh you have classic ptsd kind of thing i'm like yeah and i would get better but i would i would think about those moments with like the kids or people dying or somebody's guts being strewn out or their head being blown in um, and there were these moments too, where, you know, you had to photograph the bodies for reports and everything. And we had this battle called donkey Island where like a hundred suicide, um, a hundred, uh, insurgents with like suicide vests went there and most of them detonated themselves. And you're taking photos of that and there's just guts torn out everywhere. And, and I would keep these photos and I would find myself like waking up at like three in the morning when, cause I couldn't sleep. And I would just go to my computer and I'd open that file and just stare at dead bodies. Yep. And I, I couldn't figure out why I was doing it. And so um, years later, there was a term that we discovered because they started calling it um, resistant treatment, post-traumatic stress disorder. 
And I was like, this post-traumatic stress is a traumatic, it's a, you operate out of a traumatic stressor. So like great, Mm -hmm. for instance, um, for me, I didn't do fireworks for a real long time because of the simple fact that it sounded like incoming artillery, uh, that the whistle and the whoosh, I was like, can't do this. You know, just, it caused me to go right back to where I was. But going back to the source, you're going back to the source in this instance, right? Right. So what I discovered is is it's called moral injury. And that's the the psychological damage that occurs to your psyche when you have to do things that violate your sense of right and wrong. Hmm. You know, dead bodies, shooting a woman or child, killing another human. Hmm. Um, And and you you live with that. And your brain, because say, say what you will, all of us know that inherently, though we cannot prove this, we cannot empirically prove this. We know that human life, for whatever reason, is sacred. Like most of us know that the most mentally handicapped child is has more inherent value and worth than a prize-winning horse, right? But you can't prove that. You, you scientifically can't prove that, no. and yet we know that. And so when you're forced to do something like that, like taking a life, it just – the soul, right? Yeah. The soul. It's a so they call it soul wounds. So I, I um I've got one more quite if if you don't mind me asking. So wasted time games. Um again, uh thanks for always uh watching. Uh asked a question which was what inspired you to write the book and what do you hope readers took away from it? Um so this will this will kind of go on to what like what talking animals said too. What inspired me to write the book is I felt that the modern day veteran story was not being told. That's uh, spot on. Wow. That's good for you. That's great. Yeah. And I had talked with so many veterans. They're like, yeah, it's cool. Like, and, and I was on Marcus Luttrell's podcast. Marcus Luttrell, awesome, phenomenal dude. Love that guy. Navy cross recipient, Operation Red Wings, uh, you know, Lone Survivor became a movie, the, the whole nine yards. But his experience was this one battle as far as everything. And Marcus was actually in Ramadi the same time as I was. So he knows the hell that they went through. And I think he's got another book in him at at least to write about, uh, you know, that, but most of it, what publishers were looking for, and this is not to the detriment of these authors at all. What publishers were looking for were those classic war stories, you know, where like Chris Kyle, American sniper, Marcus Luttrell, lone survivor. You've got the operator, which is Robert O'Neill and all these dudes were seals. So there's a tier one, level operators, right? Green Berets, you know, the the whole nine yards. These guys are specialized, have specialized, have specialized. What about the other 99% of us that were just grunts trying to do our job and then we come home to a world that doesn't feel like home anymore? Hmm. And so all of us really felt alienated. Um, We felt like our story was not being told. And I, I never felt like my story was told. And I was like, what would it look like if I wrote the story of the average guy or girl that, you know, got plucked out of their, their, you know, happy go lucky home life and then comes home a disaster when they get back. Uh, And then how do I encourage people to confront the, the bullshit that we dealt with and embrace healing? Um, And that's really what inspired me and what I want people to take away from. I want one uh, I have two goals. One, I want the veteran to feel like their voice. They finally have a voice and they go, if you want to know what I went through, read this. And then two, 
I wanted the civilian populace to understand what the past 20 years of war did to us psychologically and emotionally. Sledge, how many people do you think go to war and don't come back with PTSD or some form of trauma? You know, it really depends. Um, like, I don't know anybody that could. St- I, I, I genuinely, I, maybe people could store it deeper or further back or don't address it. But I, I, I don't, I don't, I've never come across a human being that could witness some of the, the accounts that you've uh, told us about and come back the same person. Yeah. Come back undamaged, right? Gone. Gonzo seems to be one of those guys, but like I said, he's got ice in his veins and he did way more heroic, insane stuff than me. Um, like that dude is a living legend in the United States army. Like just absolutely so many valor awards. It's, it's nuts. Like he's such, I mean, that dude. Uh, just, does he, does he ever come talk to any of your support groups or anything like that? Or does he just, Gonzo is also still serving in the military. And so there's kind of that faux pas of mental health and stuff. And plus like he, he's always told me, he was like, war was just something I inherently understood. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was good at it and I, I don't have any regrets. And I'm just like, you know, that, that works for him. And yeah. he's not, a, he's not as, he's not a psychopath. He's not a, sociopath. no, he's not an asshole or anything. That's just, his- no, no, no. He's a yeah. very kind, very generous, um, very talented human being. But, you know, I, I think also too, when you're still serving, you're kind of still in that, that warrior mindset. So it's a, a little bit easier to compartmentalize. Uh, what happens though, is when you finally leave the military, that's, you can- that's when I see people struggle. And, and the reality is, is there's this 2012 study, by Gibbons and colleagues that, that showcases this it and it they discovered that veterans who and military who leave the military if they don't find a new unit tribe faith affiliation or something to identify with they'll struggle the rest of their lives yeah. now Believe it. Uh, Believe it. i i i uh well, yeah, I'm just trying to, I'm just digesting everything you're saying as well after reading the book. Like, I'm just kind of, you know, you're right. I think while you're in it, it, the only thing that I can relate to and that, that I can bridge this gap and under no circumstances, am I even putting this as the same? It's like, you're, you know, you're professional athletes, right? They, you know, that, that band of brotherhood, that brand of womanhood that you're, you're in that locker room every day practicing, you're, and then the minute that they leave, that's when everything just crumbles apart, right? They just don't understand how to get out of, you know, that's when they have to face reality. And, and because, and is that what you think maybe why Gonzo's still able to do what he's doing? Or is it because, are, are, like, do you find, I guess, you obviously had to, to, to what Bondo said, like, you had to have been able to compartmentalize. I, I think and mental health. That? But I think mental health is a weakness uh, on the battlefield, right? It, I, I, it's, I don't... Yeah, it's a, it's an oxymoron in the middle or in the military, like right. But if you're because it's weak, it's it, it, and and I'm not saying it. Look at I'm not saying it. I'm not saying with malice. No, no ill intent at all for anybody. I've got 
loved ones. I, I, I deal with mental health issues myself, loved ones. But I, I think when you're, you're going to war, if your head, if you're worried about your head, I mean, you got to be worried more so about a, yeah. a, bigger, a bigger purpose, right? Like, you know what I mean? That's and a, nothing else that's really matters. That's a great matters. point. So here's, here's something interesting that I, I bring up. Um, notice that when we go to war, none of us have post-traumatic stress. It's when we get home. Mm-hmm. Right. What's yeah. with that? Right. Well, it's because we're focused. We're on a job. We yeah. we care about the the guy or the girl next to us. We we want to make it home. We don't have time to think about that stuff. You got your warrior hat on. We got a warrior yeah. hats on, right? Like, we take the other hat off though, and you go home, and you're supposed to like reintegrate into civilian society. Well, I, I think the big thing though, when when you're in war. If you do let people down, you're letting down your teammate more or less, right? And you can't do that. So when you're home by yourself, you no longer have that teammate that's relying on you to stay alive. So now, you know, that power that you get to make sure you don't let someone down is no longer there. And then you don't have that teammate back with you, you know? So it's, you have to be stronger at war, I think. And you can let yourself down a bit when you come home, unfortunately, right? And that might be why some people have that letdown. I would imagine, and you can talk sledge, but the only thing that would matter when you're in war is live, live or die. Oh yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. And it, like, it makes life grand. It makes everything so simple. But here, here's what's interesting, and I bring this up a lot right now. I, uh, <laughs> I train um, different entities and organizations here in the state of Colorado with regard to everything from hiring veterans to how, how do we, uh, you know, reach homeless veterans to, uh, so I've worked with like Colorado state university volunteers of America. Um, and so, you know, they, they ask a lot. Uh, and I said, well, there's a misnomer that's happening right now as far as our data. So do you know who the, the largest demographic that is dying by suicide is right now out of our veterans? No. no, Vietnam veterans. Yeah, really, eh? That that vintage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are the average well, of seven. Of sense, so here's why. Um, and it, mm-hmm. and we're doing the same thing. So years later from now, we're going to see the same thing happen. Um, a friend of hopefully mine. Hopefully not. Hopefully not, because you're going to inform them. Yeah. Right. Uh, the so when everyone's like, oh, you know, it's the 22 a day. What, what they're really talking about is, is like it's a lot of Vietnam veterans that, that are dying by suicide. Now, granted, there's a large percentage of, of uh, GWAT veterans, Iraq, Afghanistan. When I say GWAT, that means global war on terror. Um, and then also you have those that just were in the military and, and couldn't cope and, and everything else that, that never saw combat. But uh, the, the thing that we're discovering and that I've discovered and and this is this is somewhat of a theory. I think it's true. I think the data will will support this. Um, is that when I got home, and like you said, you know, like what inspired you to write this book? Why did it take so long? X Y Z. I was like, I'm going to get busy living, and I'm going to do work, and screw thinking about this stuff. I'm never going to think about it. I'm going to put all my medals into a box. I'm going to put all my military stuff, and that was a part of my life then. I'm not going to deal with it now. I'm going to do like what my grandfather did. We just don't talk about it. The end. Chapter closed. Yeah, chapter closed. And so I was like, I'm going to get to work, get into work, 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 work. And so that's what I did. I joined a geopolitical intelligence firm. It was great. Uh, that's how I met Peter Zion, who you guys have, uh, uh, you know, talked about as far as everything from his books. We still work together. Yeah. Great friend, really close buddy of mine. And he actually endorsed my book um, because, you know, he he loves stuff from the geopolitical aspect. So he got to see it from the, the war side. But um uh, went to work in that company and I, and I just, I, I went to work, did my job, uh, kind of thing. 
years later, I met met this guy named Matt. He had also been wounded in action. Um, and he started working for really large companies on the West Coast, uh, ranging from like Instagram to doing like social media. And he one day somebody took notice on like one of his social media profiles that he had uh, a Marine Corps thing in the background and they asked him about it. And he opened up and all his trauma came flooding back and he just fell apart. And kind of the same thing happened to me. Um, I'm not going to spoil it, um, but the, the, the you guys who've read the book, um, yep. I start interacting with the priest and uh, uh, while I'm in Iraq and he just really provides some comfort and solace. And then years later, I come home, discover some Im- information and I just that's when everything in my life started falling apart. Um, and I was, you know, my wife was like, you got to get back in counseling. Things are messed up. Like, you know, I start doing EMDR therapy in 2019 and 2020. Um, just because it's just, yeah. <laughs> it's oh, just, yeah. a, it's yeah. devastating. Vesuvius um, erupted. Yeah. So here, here's the point. Here's why Vietnam veterans in mass are doing this. Um, and if you look, and, and again, I go back to Carl Marlantis, who uh, phenomenal author, Marine Corps, uh, Vietnam veteran, Navy Cross recipient, which is the second highest award that you can receive uh, next to the Medal of Honor. And, uh, you know, he writes about this in like his his own book. He had literally done the same thing that I did. And I, I didn't read his book until I'm, I'm going through like, you know, my EMDR therapy and I'm crying half the time I'm reading this book because I'm like, oh, my God, it's me. It's me. Oh, my God, it's me. Yeah. Um, and so he went home after Vietnam, didn't talk about Vietnam, went to work, started building his companies, the whole nine yards. His wife notices there are some things that are off the way that he treats the kids, you know, X, Y, Z. So encourages him to do this counseling thing. And he comes back to this memory of when he has to kill this young Vietnamese kid and he spirals and all, everything comes back and he's just a mess for like a decade. Um, And then, you know, he finally writes his book when he's in his like 60s, 70s now, Um, you know, and it leads to divorce for him, like a lot of issues, a lot of mental health struggles, the whole nine yards. And here's what's happened is we come home, we car compartmentalize and we go, I'm going to get on with living and we're good. We're good for five years, a year, a, you know, 10 years for me. And then something triggers that mm-hmm. and all that stuff that's buried, that's gotten gangrenous. Never dealt with, service, right? Never dealt with. So here's what's happening. All the Vietnam vets are boomers and they're all retiring. They have nothing but time and thought on their hands. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to come back to the surface? Yeah. Absolutely. You're definitely going to dig deep, right? Now, just to just a little bit of a break. Anyone that's just tuned in or listening, um, again, Amazon.ca, where cowards go to die. Um, great book. Please go buy. I love Canadians. You guys want to bet? Thirty-five bucks <laughs> for a hardcover. You can also do the uh, Kindle or the the ebook. And you said that Audible. people really like the ebook. Uh, everybody loves audible the 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 narrated yeah. version is done by bradford hastings who's an award-winning voice actor and he's done marvel and star wars so people have just gone nice. absolutely gangbusters over it because he does such a great job my only complaint is he makes all of us sound like we're southern and hick <laughs> Some of these guys are like from the northeast I'm like, why? Because I'm from Oklahoma. That you're just like, yeah, let's just do it. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I, I, well, I did want to say one thing about Canadians. This is fun. Uh, 
couple years ago, I was in Ottawa, Canada, and uh, and I'm up there, and I and I go to a pub for for a pint, right? And I'm watching I'm watching the news, and you know the number one thing that they the the Canadians were outraged about what Evertail? people were no people were price gouging on hockey tickets prices yeah. and that was like the number one headline and i was like for sure <laughs> i was like i was like dude canadians are awesome i was like you, <laughs> you should have seen when Gord downey was doing his last tour for the tragically hip and then that's when really that was at the very beginning of the Ticketmaster fiasco and we couldn't like diehard fans of the hip could not get tickets to go see yeah. the last because we knew he was dying we knew gord was dying and he had geoplastoma so um we were outraged, like just outraged. You touch our hockey and our oh, yeah. hip. You, you uh-huh. should see what the, the maple syrup prices inflate. It's oh. gangbusters down here. People are losing <laughs> their mind. So we're, we're burning cars over here. It's, I was like, Timmy's. these people are awesome. I was like, everybody else in America is outraged over really dumb stuff. Like yours is, I mean, I was like, I was like, they're just mad about hockey. I was like, that makes sense. Whereas like, you know, we had like Donald Trump and everything else going on and everyone like was like trying to kill each other. And, you know, we got school shooting. I was like, good God. I was like, I'm moving to Canada. <laughs> well, the Toronto Maple Leafs don't play on Saturday night. It's a, it's a national uproar. It's crazy. Yeah. It's and so good, I made sure I ordered some, some Canadian poutine too. I, no. I oh yeah. <laughs> That'll stop your heart. So, That'll stop your can heart. We, um, delicious though. Delicious. I, I, it, <laughs> without getting into the book. Oh, oh, rookie, can we go to the five if we could? If you don't mind. Thank you. Um, Sledge, can we talk about or briefly touch on, because this is a big integral piece of the book, and it happened to uh, you know, um, my buddy JJ, he was in the eight, was it the 86th Airborne Division? Sledge, because you wrote him about. Oh, wait, your buddy JJ? You know, he's with 173rd Airborne. 173rd Airborne, thank you. Mm-hmm. I just, you guys say these numbers, and I, it, I can't, it, you know what I mean? Uh, he, he was a paratrooper in Afghanistan, did one tour. Uh, brief definition, he told me, depending on the role, is what you guys consider a tour. Typically, it's a year, but you, you, you've done... Can you explain it maybe? Um, yeah. Cause I probably got it wrong and JJ is going to kill me later. It is what so it is. De- <laughs> depending on what branch of the service you in, you're in will determine how long you're overseas for. So Marines typically do six month rotations. So if you're a Marine Corps and you have four tours, you did two years. Now the That's army, said, okay. the army will do very long tours. <laughs> uh, so, the the thing <laughs> so when i was in ramadi i did a 15 month tour that's a year and three months and then i did nine months in afghanistan that's two years so while i did two tours as far as like army standards i've technically done four tours you know with regard to um you know the marine corps the air force is even shorter theirs are three to six month deployments uh, because the Air Force actually treats people the best. The Navy is somewhere around six to nine months too, just depending. Um, so a lot of it just depends. And then your tier one guys, and when I say tier one, that's all your like super uh, special operations guys, your Navy SEALs, your Delta Force, um, you know, 160th Special Operations Aviation and Rescue. They're, they're typically six months and they'll do six months uh, 
on over there, or they might do three months and they're home for like a month or three months and their, their operational tempo is just crazy. So a lot of it just depends on the service, but the army typically, because we're the largest branch had the longest tours. And it was simply because of the fact that we did not have a draft. Uh, so think about that in world war two, you had 11% of the population serve, uh, in four years of, of war. Um, so, and that was all, all men in Vietnam, you had 7% of the population serve. There was a draft makes sense. Right. And so people would do their, their year or two years, and then they would go home 20 years of war, 20 years of war. That is insane. That is insane. 0.86%. percent of the population. And we were sent on repeated back to back to back. There's all these studies that show you should never do more than like, you know, two years or anything, period. And they were just like, ah, screw them, man. Like they're already effed. So just keep sending them. Oh, and Jesus. That's, that's what happened. Yeah. Mm. And they're so, like, why are our veterans so screwed? I was like, I don't know. <gasps> 20 years of war will do that. <clears throat> and we, I couldn't even get out of the military. They had this thing called stop loss. So even though they didn't have a draft, they had a draft for those of us that were already in. And so yeah. literally they were like, even if you want to leave the military, you cannot because you're a highly specialized skill and therefore you're not allowed to get out. And they're like, but you can reenlist for another three years and we'll give you money. So it's like, well, if I can't get out, well, <laughs> all right, I guess I'll reenlist again. Yeah. And that's that's exactly what happened. So they institutionalized us and there was no draft. And the American populace and the rest of the world largely got to check out the lunch. And everybody goes, everyone goes, well, okay. Uh, the, the thing that I tell people now is the American populace in, in general you know, what freedom did we protect for them? We gave them the freedom of not having a draft. They got to check out for 20 years. They didn't have to deal with dead bodies coming home on uh, on the news. We just kind of, the national interest is like, man, whatever. Well, there's a war, yeah. but what, who cares? First couple of years, eh, Ben? Like they were, you know, it was hot, hot topic. And then after that, nothing, like nothing. Well, and yeah. that's why there was this great and, and and Sledge, you and I were having a, just a, a, a chat before, and you know I watched that great monk debate, uh, which is uh, you know can you trust the modern media? Uh, no, it was a great, and you can't because <laughs> and I'm a journalist. Fit. Yeah, and it doesn't because it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit the narrative you don't hear. So we know full well. Uh, I don't know if it appeared on OpenSecrets.com, but I definitely found it. It was reported that basically under the Bush and Obama administrations, right at the end of the Bush administration, <clears throat> beginning of the Obama administration, they prevented news programs, both Fox and MSNBC and CNN, et cetera, et cetera, from, from showing the caskets coming home because yeah. it didn't fit the government's narrative. You, okay, yeah, no, I won't. Um, because politicians are just a bunch of assholes. Well, well look, and, look at uh, look at what's what? going on right now. What Russia and Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine. Everybody was yep. talking about it at the beginning. Yep. Now you barely hear anything about it anymore. You're right? still hearing yeah, a little bit, but in another six of, months, we're doing nothing. work. Yeah, we're doing work over there. We're yeah. all we've we've got all of our guys over in Poland. We got we got our special forces guys going into Ukraine and training them. We're bringing the Ukrainians up to. To different military installations here to train them. 
You're not active anymore, Ace Ledge, are you? No, but I keep my ear close. I live right on the footsteps of Fort Carson, and so I'm friends with like a lot of the guys that are. Shit shit seems like it's going down here, right? Well, can can I ask it? Like, can we can we talk about? Can we talk? Well, and and it could be a no, and because maybe it's the part of the book, and maybe you don't want to go there. So, just can we talk about April? Yeah, let, and, let me be because uh, I don't want to get sued. Uh, April, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and just uh, the family, and could you talk about it in the book? And and that's not what I'm trying to get at. And I'm just saying, like, the, the lack of support that the army and and the navy and the would provide the families back at home and yeah, counseling yeah. and how to to you know what I mean? And yeah. we cannot, and that's fine. But I just want maybe to touch on that the lack of. Yeah. That's that again, no one Did talks your government about it. Take care of you well coming back to their country after having fought for them, right? <laughs> okay. Here here so people ask me that question all the time. And I go, You want to know how how well we're treating our veterans? Go down to your local VA office. How are yeah. we doing? Veteran affairs. Right. No, it's a yeah. shit sh- like it has the worst reputation out of any institution. So it, it, let me here, let me give you guys this. I just had surgery this last week, right? Um, oh yeah. You told me about that. Yeah. Throughout here. So, so this is fun. Uh, so, oh my God, I'm going to get on. A tell them why, tell them why you did. Me a, tell, yeah. Tell okay. Why. So yeah. while we were in yeah. Iraq and Afghanistan, we had these things called burn pits. Burn pits were basically, they were like, look, there's a lot of sensitive information that we don't want the Taliban or Al Qaeda getting their hands on. Cause we're fighting, you know, uh, an advanced enemies, blah, 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 blah. So we would just burn everything. Cardboard, lithium batteries, our feces, <laughs> And we burned it all with jet fuel. That's got to be healthy. And then oh, we yeah. slept next to it and inhaled it all. So a lot of us are coming back with cancer clusters, um, cancer just in weird places. Um, I've had friends in my unit. I'm not I'm not going to spoil things for the book that are dead now um, because of certain types of cancer that they, that they got. So um, come to find out, like, Years later, I start having issues, uh, and I'm like, dude, like I can't breathe. Um, you know, I'm constantly messed up here, and then all this stuff about the burn pits comes up. And I, I literally slept right next to one. I was always burning our feces. I have photos of the stuff. You know, I'm like, oh, this is funny. I'm glad I documented it now. So I uh, come in, and uh, I have to have surgery on my sinus cavity. They do eight different procedures. Jesus um, Murphy. yeah. So because I have Just like allergic, allergic rhinitis, chronic, acute, severe, recurrent sinusitis, uh, sinus disease, um, conscible, I don't know, I deviated septum. And that was from when I went head first in the wall, when I got wounded in combat, um, when they attacked our base, uh, which I didn't talk about that. That was, that's funny. We can talk about that in a minute. Everyone loves that story. So <laughs> I've told it like 80,000 times, but, um, so it was just really bad stuff going on there. And finally, I, I complained about it enough that they send me to a specialist. So the VA contracts now with like specialties. So I go to an ear, nose and throat specialist. And this dude takes one look at me and he goes, you are all types of effed up. You have to have surgery. And I was like, I, I figured, I figured that's the case. Okay. So I have the severe sinus disease. And so they start clearing it up. And he's, he, he's like, look, man, you're, you're still going to deal with this stuff for the rest of your life. I'm sorry. He's like, we, we do what we can. He said, but when I got in there, it was a absolute disaster. He was like, it's, it's crazy. I've, I've never seen stuff like this. I was like, sweet. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, That's exactly <laughs> what I want to hear. Right. Yeah. 
<laughs> so the VA is like the VA passed this thing called the PACT Act uh, or Congress did. And it's supposed to take care of our veterans that were exposed to this and compensate them monetarily and with medical services to take care of our veterans. Yay. So they tell us to file. So I file, right? I get, I just get, I've got it right here. I'll show you this stuff. So here's, here's my letter. They go, yep, we did it. We effed you up. You're, you're service rated. It says, yes, is it service connected? At 0%, you get nothing. That's pretty nice. nice. So, and then on top of that, I have a cervical neck injury because I went head first into a wall. They denied that too. So now I'm having to, I, I literally have to have a lawyer now. One of my friends is, is drafting up legal document. I pulled all my medical records from the military and I specifically have, it shows I have a neck injury from the day that I got wounded in combat. I'm having to send in my orders for my purple heart to show them neck injury, head first into the wall, traumatic brain injury, concussion. And then on top of that, I'm having to, to gather sworn statements from Gonzo who was like, who's an EMT and a paramedic uh, in his, with the Wichita fire department. And then on top of that was a combat medic before he moved over to us to write a sworn statement being like, I examined him. Like, wow, that's a big fuck so, you from, Oh my God. Yeah. That sucks. So that, that's how well we're taking care of our veterans. Just Thanks again, politicians, just to let you know, politicians. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You guys are great. Yeah. You're wonderful. People. You guys are great. Thank you. For, yeah. You just, for you, us you just, yeah, and thanks for you know what just drives me. I can't stand when a pol. I said this before. I cannot stand when a politician says they've served your country. No, you didn't. You worked for the Corporation of Canada. You worked for the Corporation of Ontario. You worked for the Corporation of your region or your city. Oh, you did not. They're serve. working for the corporations. Facebook, Google, That's it. all the monopolies now. Some you of them may have served. Shit. Some of them may have served. Some well. there's a, some and, 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 like and. Pete Buttigieg, like he's the Navy vet, and he's like, "I'm a combat." I'm like, "You're not yeah. a combat vet." When you, you did administrative, combat? like you, did you were an administrative pogue, and a pogue is a person other than Grant. Now, granted, this is not to take away anybody's service as far as no. everything. No, no, I not at all. Get, That's not what we're saying. But at I the end of the upset. at the end of the day, I don't want their account in terms of dealing with traumatic experiences and what it's actually like to fucking be in war. If you're in an office, right? I can do that in a. In yeah, my law office. The, the reality of the situation that most people have to realize is like the term combat veteran is very interesting and convoluted. So there are people who sat on base and never left base and, and got to eat frozen ice cream and Red Bull slushies. I'm not kidding you. There were Red Bull slushies in the green zone. It was insane. <laughs> um, Jack them right up, eh? Yeah. So they, I mean, they got to, they got to live it. They didn't have to see combat. And that's, that's just the reality of the military because most of them are combat multipliers and the percentage that actually do see combat are more. I get upset when you have these guys that went overseas like Pete, who really try to play up their like, Oh, yeah. I was, you know, I was this look dude who went over there and look what I yeah. did. And I'm like, man, like, you, <laughs> you know that when you start going down that road, the rest of us veterans are like, you punk bitch, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we know what's up. We knew yeah, you were 100%. a father. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, 100%. 100%. Poser, right? Um, 
let's talk about how you open up let's talk about how you uh you do well not you don't open up the book that way but very close to the very beginning of the book you talk about the the attack on base after you get to uh on on dash e uh i'm seeing organy afghanistan um can you all right let's uh because that is a kind of I know not the fact that you got hurt or it was traumatic and that's what you, you kind of go down this whole path of the PTSD and because of that, but if you want to talk about it. What are we running to brand Curry? What are we huh? running to one? Are we running to one? Well, it, it's really up to sledge. I mean, yeah. it, you guys got okay. time. Keep going. Well, I just, I, I, okay. I want to leave on. I want, I want him to leave the audience with a hook, right? So that they, you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Uh, so I'm just not sure on the timing if the, you know what I mean. This whole episode's been a hook. I don't know how you don't. No, 100. percent listen to this. I don't know how you haven't yeah. bought at least the audio book like Trevor did. See, Tre- Trevor okay. bought the book right there. Trevor bought yeah. the book. Yeah. Trevor just went bam. I'm buying the audio book. The audio book because that's my kind of reading. That's fine. Yeah, I, that's my I'm kind the of same reading. way. I like when I'm in the car. I, I I listen to audiobooks. I read a hardcover and then I have a Kindle also. I'm always like reading three books at the same time on three different platforms. It's nutty. I don't Depends know what's I'm, I'm old school. I need the book. I need the paperback. Paper paper is paper. my favorite. I need it. Yeah, yeah I need but, it. But um, I, I can do the same thing right too. there. I, I want to say one thing because again, I don't want to detract <laughs> from veteran services. Like combat veteran, whether you went to war or not, that that is irrelevant. It's when you um are are fluffing that resume to to an extreme degree that that it becomes problematic like everything that i've done is 100 truthful everyone knows like the guys on base here like they know my background and everything yeah, you can read all, all my entire story in the book and it's been fact checked yeah. by not just one or two people we're talking like i had to send it to guys who are in the air force guys that were in the navy xyz like multiple fact checks my my problem is is that when you inflate that service record, as opposed to like a great example for Pete, had Pete come in there and just been like, yeah, man, I served in Afghanistan. I did Navy intelligence. Uh, you know, I, was, I ran the the compound with an interrogation and stuff. I'd have been like, tight, dude, dope, really yeah. like cool. But instead, his little PR spin masters wanted to like, ooh, look at him. And then and and at that point, that's that's when you lose your agency. That's when you lose your your authenticity. So anyway, I just selling I yourself, had, right? I yeah, you're selling yourself. And like, if I ever start selling myself, and you're like, like it's like Bernie Sanders, like who who's doing a tour on <coughs> capitalism where he's charging like a hundred bucks to go to an anti-capitalism. Th- I'm like. Yeah, (laughs) pay a hundred dollars to go to my anti-capitalism, you know, rah 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 event, which is ironic because it's capitalism that's allowing me to charge the hundred dollars. Yeah, and I'm just like that. Hypocrite doesn't. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a hypocrite at all. Does not compete. So I'm just saying, be be the person that you exactly are. Like I'm, I'm exactly who I am, online and offline. Um, Because authenticity, authenticity, allowing people to get away with with stupid stuff. So anyway, I just had to preface that now back to the question at hand that Brandon asked with regard to the opening sequence. So the opening sequence in the book, this is going to give anything away. Um, and it's, I, I think it'll be written more powerfully is um, so I was in Organy, Afghanistan, which is Organy and Shkin, which are right on the border of Pakistan. So a lot of times early in the war effort and even just beyond um, you know, Taliban and Al Qaeda would just do cross border raids. They'd, they'd, because Pakistan was a, um, ally. 
I put that very loosely in air quote. <laughs> um, and they would just, they would go over there and hide and then they, you know, come across the border and attack. Uh, so we just, they, when I arrived in Oregon E, everyone called it Rocket City because they would launch 107 millimeter rockets. I'm going to show you guys something here real quick. This is a portion of the rocket oh, that got me. Jeez. Holy so, fuck. Th- this is only about a quarter of it. Yeah. Got to make a necklace out of that. But look look what, what it does to the metal. Like, yeah. it's Jesus. But it's like a little paper ribbon, you know? Now, Holy shit. The pieces of this flying everywhere. Like a banana peel, eh? Yeah. Shrapnel. Yeah. So we smuggled this back. <laughs> you got it all in your arm, too. You got it in your yeah. arm as well. Uh, no, it was, my, it was my lower back, but luckily my oh, body arm back? stopped all that. Yeah, okay. and the the back there, you can't see it, but there are the fragment pieces that they pulled from my body armor. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, and then my better my stories have, than I got. Slide have a piece also. <laughs> so they would launch these 107 millimeter rockets, which are Chinese made, and sometimes they would strap them either with. Um, you know, some form of explosive like TNT or, or C4, sometimes uh, white phosphorus, which is ri- that ma- it made them wildly inaccurate because if you're adding weight, you know, it's going to yeah. change the trajectory. So they were doing that. The, the day in question, it was like, I think it was like, I don't, I don't remember. It was like 50 or 60th rocket attack, something like that. You know, so I'm used to this. I'm like, oh, we're going to get in the bunker, whatever. These guys are idiots. Um, well, some of the, the locals, cause early on in the war effort, we would employ Afghans to do like, you know, wash, wash our clothes, help, help the cooks with cooking, you know, stuff that, that we needed help with, uh, you know, menial stuff around bakes. Hey, can you fix like the, the grounding to the water heater went out again? Cause we were used to taking cold showers and then you would get electrocuted too half the time, uh, when you grab the nozzle, there's a story about that in the book. I'm not Yeah, that's you. funny. That yeah, is. it's really funny. So, but no, yeah, you, just, you just go back to the hockey dressing room and you're like, a hundred percent, we would do that to somebody. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, they, uh, a group of them asked to leave early and we're like, well, that's weird. And then all of a sudden they leave within 30 minutes, we're getting hit, you know? And so they're trying to, to attack the base. Things are, are going bad. And they, the rockets at first, they go over the base for like, ha, 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 morons. They start landing inside the base. They start hitting bunkers. So they And we're like, oh, no, they know where our strategic positions are. Um, so Rats. I have met up with Gonzo at this point. He's like, hey, I got to radio the team in Kandahar and let them know what's going on. And I'm going to stay with the commander and get set reps as far as everything you got to go get the rest of these local Afghans. We can't have them getting killed. Work with the Intel guys. And we're going to, uh, and like, don't go to a bunker, obviously. <laughs> and, and the, the scene opens with me. I'd run out of my, uh, the building where I was, I was living in. Uh, and there's this young Afghan boy. Cause a lot of times the, the parents would, bring your kids to work to make extra money for their families. And he had taken a piece of shrapnel to his chest. And we call that like a sucking chest wound because it collapses the lung. And you, you either have to put a little piece of flap over there. So it creates that, or if you're a medic, you have a bore needle to jam in and then you've probably seen it where they twist it and the blood spouts out and then they can breathe finally again. 
So he's this medics hovering over this, this young child. Um, and he's about to jam that into his chest to relieve the pressure. And I'm like, Oh no. Uh, so I do not go to the bunkers. I go to our chow hall, which is this building in the middle, uh, where we'd eat. And there's, a section of wall that has like some of the, an oven and other stuff. And we figure that's a good spot. It's reinforced. Um, but it's close to our tactical operations center, which was what they were really aiming for. And the tower there. And we get all the Afghans into this corridor and all the, and our interpreters are, are there with us. And uh, we walk in the room and it's me this other guy, Max, that's not his real name. Another guy named Lopez, also not his real name. Uh, Max is my one of my very best friends uh, in the entire world. Um, he's with the Joint Special Operations Command now, so that's why I can't release his, yeah, his name 100%. or his info or anything. But, um, you know, we're joking. We're laughing. We're like, ah, oh, we've been through this before, which is kind of what you do when you get to that point. And we had... Mind you, we're out in the middle of nowhere. So we're we're eating sea rations, which are terrible. Uh, and everybody gets dysentery while we're out there. So sometimes they fly in Dr. Pepper and Sprite, all the you know, creature commodities that you're like, yes. So a new batch has just arrived. And Lopez is walking out, uh, drinking one, and and uh, Max looks at him and he's like, Oh my God, you know. He's like, we got more and, you know, shit's exploding around us and we're just, we're kind of chuckling. And he's like, yeah, yeah, man. He's like new stock of the good stuff. So he goes in there, he grabs Dr. Pepper. He's like, I'm getting a Dr. Pepper and calling it a day. So he walks back in the room and we have finally moved everybody into this corridor. And I'm, I remember I was, I was looking at Max and um, all of a sudden I, I think I hear like the faintest whistle and then blackness, you know? And I, I wake up, I don't know how long this has been. I don't, I have no idea where Lopez is either at this point, um, which was confusing. This is where everything is kind of really confusing. And even Max and I have like different ideas as far as what happened. Cause we were, we were injured and he was like, yeah, he was like, cause he read that section and, and he was like, yeah, you know, most of this makes sense, you know, but we were also like really effed up. Um, so I wake up and there's, is memory that I, is always in my head. Um, it's this large Afghan man in a wool turban thing. And he is terrified. His eyes are the size of saucers. And he's like pointing at me and I like lean into the wall and I'm like waving him off. I'm like, shut the fuck up, you know, and I'm yelling at everybody and I can't hear a damn thing either. And I look down at my arms and I'm like, what is all this black and clear stuff on my arms? And I start like, you know, wiping it off. Cause I'm, in, I'm just in a t-shirt at this point in body armor and like really short, what we call Ranger panties. Um, and I'm like, what the hell? And so I start wiping and my hands start bleeding and my arms are, are bleeding a little bit. I'm just like, what is this? And I realized that the window had been blown out from where we were and it blown shrapnel all in and glass all into my forearms. It's very superficial. It's fine. Um, and I'm like, what? And I'm like everything. And I'm like groggy and everything's moving slow. And I'm like yelling at these guys. And they're like, I can tell the Afghans are yelling. And I'm like, Max, Max, where the fuck are you? 
And I look down and there's like this Dr. Pepper trail. And this is funny because Max's wife and I, we, we always laugh about this. She's like, this, the part of the story that has never changed is the Dr. Pepper. <laughs> so like for, for whatever reason, that like really stuck for both of us. Well, Max had been blown through the door into the eating section and had been knocked like knocked over all these tables um, and the, the pop can had like just gone everywhere. So there's just Dr. Pepper splattered to the, to the moon and back. And I, I walk in there and it's, it looks like a scene from the walking dead where there's this like blood trail over leading over into a corner. And I find Max and he's, he's sitting there and he's rocking back and forth and his, his sleeve, cause he has his uniform on is, is bloody. And I come in there and then uh, I think Lopez runs in there at that point. And I'm like, yo, you got to let me see, man. And he's yelling and I'm yelling. I can't hear him. Finally, I, I, he, you know, he's rocking back and forth. He, he keeps telling me, I think my elbow's broken. And I was like, that's the least of your worries at this moment. There's blood everywhere. Um, so I have this steel black dagger that I pull out of my body armor and I, we slice open, you know, the, his, his sleeve and I lift his arm and, right here in his tricep, it looks like a pop can has exploded. Um, and there's just like fatty muscle tissue. And I'm like, uh, which is wild because like now that injury is like the size of this. It's like tiny. And I'm like, how did that happen? It's funny how the body closes up wounds. Um, but like, yeah, fat and muscle tissue and he's, and it's just blood. And I'm like, uh Oh, this is bad. (laughs) So we like pick him up and, you know, we drape him uh, around. So he's in the middle. I'm on one side. Lopez is on the other. And we like start walking him in and just blood's like dripping down. And prior to advancements in, you know, the Iraq and Afghan wars, we still had the Vietnam era, like pressure dressing wounded. And this is where muscle memory kicks in and will either save you or kill you. His had been blown off. I mean, it was a large explosion. Lopez and I, we still have our, ours but the the training doctrine at the time was you never use yours on somebody else ever because if you get injured then you have nothing to wrap yourself up with so we're like well we got to find something so we find some dish towels and we start packing it in there we're finding like twine that they use to like for turkeys and stuff (laughs) and just wrapping it around like yeah (laughs) makeshift pressure dressing and I'm like, we got to get the medics. And they set up a triage rally point in the gym, which was right around the corner. It was, it was, so it was no big deal. So I run out the back door, but we had just built, erected a wall there. And I run smack dab into it. I'm start pounding on it. All more rockets are coming in. They're getting closer. I'm my hands start to tremble and I'm shaking at this point. I'm like, this is it. This is where we die. And um, and so I run back into the room. And this is when the fear really, really begins to take me. Um is I, I just, I look at Max and um, I look at Max and, and Lopez and I'm like, I just scream at him. I go, they block access to triage. Where the hell do we go? And, uh, and so I just go back to patching him up and my hands are trembling and I'm like, I'm not running out again. I like that's that's when the fear took me. I was like, I am not running out again. I've been blown up once. Lopez is fine. And I just look at him and I was like, it is your turn to get blown up. And so he's like kind of standing there and he's going to have to run out the way that we just that he that that, you know, Max and I got injured. And he's like, all right. And he does it. 
like a boss and he gets the medics. And this is kind of where I start going in and out of lucidity. I don't know how long it took, but he comes back with the medics. I'm patching, I'm patching up Max. You know, Max is asking for water. And luckily, you know, the training kicks in. I'm like, hey man, I can't give you water because you'll go further into shock. It could shut your system down. We don't want that to happen. And he's like ghost white. There's blood loss. There's so much blood loss. Um, and so Lopez comes in with the medics. The medics are totally freaked out too. They're, we try and start an IV. Their hands keep shaking. We can't get an IV started. Finally, the Air Force calls in uh, uh, airstrike, ends the attack. We blow up the side of this mountain. Uh, the howitzers are firing into it. Like We're just dumping at this point. The, the quick reaction force is out the gate. We have to go get a litter. And I don't remember any of this at this point. Like literally just blackout city is where this happened. The, the last thing I remember are the medics trying to start an IV. This is all secondhand what I'm telling you from, from this point out. Uh, we get him on a medevac. I have no idea how we get him to a medevac. Apparently I carried him to the medevac along with Lopez and the, and the other two uh, medics um, and just ran there. The, the, the helicopter arrives. They take him off. Uh, Gonzo finds me. And like I have uh, Max's rifle with me because you never lose the rifle. Otherwise it is a bad thing. Like even when you're wounded, make sure you get the rifle. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm like clutching his rifle to my chest, just standing there, like just vacant nothingness. And like, I, you know, I'm like covered in blood, like mine Max's, I don't have a freaking clue. And it's like crisscrossed kind of across my arm, you know, like looks like somebody had taken paint and splattered it like that, like where there's just lines and stuff. And um, Gonzo looks at me and he's like, hey, man, are you okay?" And I'm like, oh, I just got my bell rung, man. I'm I'm good. I'm good. He's like, well, you don't look good. (laughs) I'm like, I'm good, man. And he was like, he's like, um. Hey, like, don't move. And he like starts messing with my neck and I'm like swatting at him. And then like my hand starts to swell. And then my, my comments become nonsensical. Uh, It's called word salad where you start mixing stuff together. And so I start having word salad. I'm talking about violins and the attack and none of it makes any sense. And guys are like, ah, crap. He's got a concussion. This is before we know about traumatic brain injuries. Um, and so they take me over to the base medic and like, it's just a small, tiny hut, uh, where the surgeon and, and they're like, he's like, yeah, like you, you can see, and he went here and, uh, you know, and my hand, I'm like looking at it now. It's like looking from the hand from Everlong, the Foo Fighters, where it's like getting bigger. I like have this <laughs> fat Buddha hand. I'm like staring at it. And I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And they, they said I did what's called, you know, a common uh, skateboarder fracture because when I went head first in the wall, it smashed yeah. and then just just fractured all this stuff in here. Um, and so he was like, ah, dude, I can't cast this here. And I was like, all right. Uh, and so they splint it. So I'm in a splint like this with my arm around it. I have photos of this. Um, it's, it's on my website, um, I think. Uh, and so they splint it and they're like, all right, call another medevac. They're like, we can't get him out. There are sandstorms in Kandahar and in Bagram and everything right now. Is he urgent critical? They're like, no. Um, they're like, keep him on base until the sandstorm. So I have to sit on base fucked up for three days <laughs> until they can get me out. And they have and to make shift sling. Yeah. And it makes shift sling. And I have to be, 
I also have to be in, um, they have to keep me awake for 24 hours to make sure I don't die from the head injury. Oh my God. So not only am I like just crazy at that point, (laughs) no sleep. And the worst part is, is they're like, Hey, we need you to fill out a report about what happened so that we can put, you know, uh, Max in for, for, uh, uh, purple heart. And then, uh, and I'm like, all right. And I like try and write and it's like chicken scratch. And I have no, it's like the, probably the worst report ever. It's like rocket go boom. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) So feeling good. (laughs) Yeah. And then after that, they, they evacuated me to Kandahar. Um, they cast my wrist there. I ended up, um, I ended up, uh, choosing to stay they gave me the option to go home and i said no i i can't i can't leave the country while my team's still here uh, that just wouldn't be right and i could have gone home for christmas it would have been dope um but i'm i'm glad that i didn't because robin williams showed up on christmas eve and did no a surprise way. uh so i got to see robin williams before he died perform that's on, wicked which that's was wicked. insane and it was the coolest moment ever mm-hmm. granted i was higher than a kite um, cause I was on like all this, this pain, pain med. So he probably um, was too. Yeah, probably likely. Um, but it was, uh, you know, good, good, like kind of Bob hope visiting the troops memory for me. And I'm, and I was glad that I stayed, but I literally, I only had a month left in my tour of duty. And so they just, um, they, they, uh, they let me answer phones and headquarters and I would like sleep in there at night to, to answer sometimes, uh, and then they would try and have me drive uh, the interpreters around in Kandahar, but that proved very difficult because I'm, you know, I'm right-handed and my hand is in a cast, and you know, you drive on the wrong side, so it's the right side and it's a shifter. So I'm like trying to move a steering wheel and shift as far as everything, and like these, most of the time I would just make the interpreters drive. <laughs> <laughs> so I pick them up and be like, "You gotta drive, man. I'm messed, I'm effed up." And they're like, "Are you on drugs too?" I was like, "Yeah, totally." <laughs> so, <laughs> we got so uh, like, we, uh, no, no. Like a lot of people are just just wanted to update you on the comments. A lot of people want the second episode, uh, uh, but you know what? Uh, we can all absolutely love to have you. We're gonna have you back. But there's a couple more stories I want to ask. Yeah, um, because this is this is phenomenal. Um, you mentioned in the book. Um, phenomenally crazy you you mentioned the book the stats which Mm -hmm. is just again further proof that i did read the book collins um which is the statistics of you dying at war in the first 90 days of your tour and the last 30 days of your tour is the first one i want you to touch on and the second because a lot of people don't know that and the second is the dog and pony show which i'm not going to ruin the story in the book on a casualty that did end up happening on the dog and pony show okay. um, in, yeah. in Iraq. But are you talking about the John um, McCain thing? Yeah. That yeah. well, and then the they went on they went on a black road, which they weren't supposed to, and it was all for the oh, TV cameras. That was all that was all in North. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about yeah. that. That's, and then that's but important just, to how we how we won. Yeah. Well, and, and and just it's more of the what we see again on the media is what they want us to see. It's the dog and pony show. It's the milk mm-hmm. run for all salespeople that are out there. It's propaganda. 
like in our psychological operations community, like civil affairs and psychological operations are under the same command. So there's a lot of crossover. And so it's, it was the largest PSYOP campaign I've ever seen. Well, actually, I, I think the current media is the largest PSYOP campaign I've ever seen. Very successful. Too. I agree with they're that. doing a great job. But great job. Sucks that they're doing it. Um, so, yeah. So the, the first one, uh, the first 90 days in a country are the most dangerous because you're just getting used to your surroundings. You don't, you don't know that like, okay, should, does it, is this an IED or is this just trash? You know, cause everything looks like trash. Um, where, where do I go? And so what happens is, is typically within the first 90 days, that's when you have the most casualties. When you're well established into your kind of tour of duty already, it's, it's a lot less unless you end up in a really kind of wicked scenario. Like, um, uh, I had a friend named uh, Sergeant First Class Raymond Bouchon. He got killed when during the Battle of Donkey Island. He was he was well on his way to, um, what was it? Uh, probably like nine months in country, um, and it was just it, it was just crap luck, man. It was just so, so sometimes that happens, but uh, statistically, the first ninety days and then the last thirty days is because you get complacent. Uh, you mm-hmm. know that you're going home, and so you start to miss things. Uh, so out of that, like, uh, and I know you asked this question earlier. Um, I was married at the time, not to my current wife, my my wife and I, now we've been, we've been married for 12 years, um, almost. And, uh, my, my wife at the time we had met while I was in college in the military and, uh, you know, she was, she was a military brat, but she left when, um, which is pretty typical for, for guys overseas, unfortunately, uh, about um, um, three months, about a month shy of me coming home. And that just put my head in a bad space. And so you become complacent. You're like, Oh, well I'm going home. And that you start missing stuff. You, you start missing the piece of, of wire that's sticking out of the ground. You start kind of checking out and, um, Wagner, who's, who's my teammate. He pulled me aside one day and, uh, you know, this is, this is about 30 days. And, uh, he goes, Hey man, we, we need to talk. And I was like, all right, what's up? And he goes, you know how sorry we are that your wife left you. And I was like, yeah, man, I know you guys have, you've been there. You've been a support. And he's like, look, man, I'm going to be honest with you. You're, you're slipping. And I, I, I go to object, right? I go to object. And he, he holds up his hand and he's like, look, you know it. And I know it. You're missing things on mission that could come second nature and he's like, I am so sorry, Sledge, that, that your wife left. He said, but if you don't pull it together, you're going to get us killed too. And he said, you know it and I know it, that the last 30 days are the most dangerous. And if you keep slipping, one of us is going to die. And I was like, you're right. And so like had to bury that pain all deep down, just push it down and never bring it up kind of moment. Um, and so... <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, it, uh, so, so that, that, those are the statistics on that. And then the dog and pony show stuff. Um, so what you see in the media, a lot of times is not the reality of the situation on on the ground. So the first kind of thing that really happened was we had this guy, his name's captain Travis Patrick Quinn. Uh, there's a lot of information about this guy. He's a former Green Beret Special Forces soldier who switched over to civil affairs and was running the uh, G5S5, which is the the civil affairs uh, aspect of uh, the headquarters element uh, in Ramadi during that time. He spoke Arabic, multiple languages, 
And he had a, you know, smart, well-informed guy. We loved him. Um, he had a plan to retake the Ambar province because, and it really focused in on the counterinsurgency operations and being that it was the most violent city on earth. Uh, he said, look, this is the way that we do it. He said, we have all these tribal warlords here that, and shakes that basically run the police. They run, you know, the locals, all of that. And he said, we've destroyed their infrastructure. Now think about this. If the Chinese government came in and wrecked the infrastructure and we lose power, water, sewage, trash, you think we're going to rise up? Of course we're going to rise up. Like you take away creature comforts, people get pissed. And so he's like, if we funnel projects to restore the infrastructure and then on top of that, empower them to empower the people and they look like the heroes and we kind of take a back seat, then we'll win the war. And I was like, yeah, that's what we got to do. This is like the CA mission. This is how it, this is how we work. The civil affairs mission. And so we're like, this guy's got it hundred percent game on. It starts to work. And we flip uh Sheikh Sitar Abu Risha. Uh, he's kind of a dirtbag. He was uh, a, a tribal warlord. We had arrested him a ton of times, but he flips that dude. We start going over his house. He's like feeding us tea and like uh, Turkish coffee and like all this other stuff. We start funneling him all these projects for his contractors to take care of. And we start shifting the tide of the war while we're there. And by the end, Ramadi had become the most pacified city um, because of the fact that we had restored 18 hours of consistent uh, electricity per day water, sewage, and trash was running up again. So, so that's the success story on that side. But um, the media hears about this, right? So they bring in Ollie North and journalists from Newsweek. And they're like, we got we to gotta capture the story of the Anbar Awakening. And they drive down Route Michigan, which is a black road. They clear it every night because it's a major thoroughfare throughout Ramadi. But it is black. They go down that road in broad daylight when a bunch of IEDs have been placed. And guess what happens? They fucking hit a daisy-chained IEG. Catastrophic. Nothing left. They killed the first female um, Marine officer, Megan McClung. I'm I'm friends with, uh, funny enough, a guy that was really close with her. Um, And, I mean, it's just devastating. And I was like, he he freaking died for a photo op with Mm -hmm. Ollie North. This was retarded. Uh, just, uh, and, and I mean, I don't mean that in the sense, like, this, no, no. I mean, this is like, yep. it, like that is very slow thinking. That is, mm-hmm. that is ignorance uh, that we have done. Uh, and so yeah. we were yeah. we were very upset about that. So <laughs> I begin, I'm like, what is, what is up with this stuff? Then in Camp Ramadi, they have a regular landing zone and then they create a VIP landing zone where all your congressmen, where all your senators get to come in and check on their Kellogg Brown and Root investments. So this the story is told. Shits. <laughs> yeah. So this story is told secondhand by me. John McCain starts his run for this is what his ramp up to announcing his presidency. And like, uh, let me preface this. Love John McCain as a veteran. The service that he gave this country. Absolutely incredible. Politics changed him though. Not for necessarily the better. I still think he had gall. I think he did a lot of things that had integrity as a politician and stood up when needed to be, but he also still played the game. And if you look at his history and like how he like left his wife for like the heir of Anheuser-Busch and kind of did some crappy stuff, you'll see he was not, he was flawed too. Like all of us have these flaws, but because he realized politics is playing politics and you got to put stuff on camera, 
Um, and this story is told to me, I tell it through the, through the lens of Kit McVeigh, who is, who was down at Camp Corregidor. So um, they want to get in on the Ambar Awakening too. So it's like them. And I think it's like people from CNN, uh, they start doing like, oh, look at how Ramadi has been beautified. So the command decides that before they get there, we need to paint tea barriers. Tea barriers are blast walls. They're concrete blast walls. So they hire locals to, to make it look all pretty, even though there's just raw sewage running throughout the street. And we are still in an urban combat warfare. So, so this is early. Trying to put some lipstick like, on it. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're putting lipstick on the war pig there. This is early 2007. And this is like the closing engagement during the battle of Ramadi. It was operation Murfreesboro. So before operations Mur- Murfreesboro, he shows up with his film crew and kits out there. And he's like, I'll never forget this. He was like, they're standing in knee deep raw sewage talking about like how beautiful like Ramadi is getting and how we're, we're changing the war effort and everything. Had they walked a hundred yards forward, there was like this area called like Eagle's nest. There's a, a literally like a demarcation zone where you didn't pass that line because you would get shot dead by insurgent snipers. So it, had he just walked a hundred yards forward, he would have been shot dead. Um, and so he's standing in knee deep trash. They're filming what they want to film so that it goes back to the American public, all neatly tied in a bow. Meanwhile, all of us are getting killed there. And then the next, like the next week or two, Kit goes out, goes on Murfreesboro and like has to hold in some kid's brain. A 19 year old kid's brain is in cause he got shot in the head. But, right. you know, it's it's pretty. At least we're painting tea barriers. <laughs> so. It's absurd. Yeah, it's, absurd. Yeah, it's just, you know, and, and I think this is why, you know, and I'm not saying this because we have one, but I'm just saying this is why I think there's a rise of podcasts is because, you know, we know that there's a you know, an editor, a master editor, and there's a master producer and there's the, the, you know, the big, you know, what we want the people to see behind the scenes. Um, you know, and if it wasn't for my, like, like I said, I've been, JJ and I were, um, friends before he joined the army, before he was a paratrooper and we stayed in contact when I was in Australia and then he was stationed in, uh, Italy and then they would fly in to, uh, Afghanistan. Um, and you know, it's just, you hear this and you sound a lot like them too. Like even some of the slang and, and the vernacular. And, um, so this is not for anyone that's listening. I've heard this from multiple people, including one of my dear friends, 25 years, um, who is, who, who texted me this morning saying he's almost done your book as well. Um, so, and he's just, but I think he's taking, like, I, I don't know why, you know, I don't know. I mean, he, yeah, he he's a full-time teacher, three girls too. So, um, <laughs> but he's saying a lot of the stories are hitting home. Right. And, and you, you, you hit on a lot of good things because I just see a lot of likeness between the two of you and just, yeah, you guys are just the, you guys aren't the seal team or the green berets. You guys are literally, um, I hate the term bottom of the totem pole, but you, you are like, you're the ones that do the grunt work and no one, you're in the trenches. Story. 
you literally are in the trenches. And this book, again, Amazon.ca, support a vet, help a vet, um, or cowards go to die. Um, Movie I, to come uh, out or, or series, right, Sledge? I, I would love for, like, if you're in Hollywood and you're listening to this and you want a mini series, like, by all means, I think Matthew I think McConaughey could play you. It'd be perfect. Oh, Matthew McConaughey would be too would be old, good. man. You, you would Absolutely. have well, twenty-year-old his son, maybe. <laughs> yeah, he could be talking about his past I, experiences. Yeah, but I, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, Matthew McConaughey could do the uh, another version of the of the audiobook just because of a, and, and just have him drive a Lexus. That'd be good. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, right, I used to live Ryan in Austin, Reynolds. Texas. Funny enough, so yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> Um, but, uh, right. definitely, yeah, all right, all right, all right. Um, but, but, definitely, I think Ryan Reynolds should do this. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds or Matt Damon, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck would write a great script. Matt Damon. Matt Damon. <laughs> Again, Team America. Thank you. Uh, Amazon.ca, uh, any, uh, BenjaminSledge.com. BenjaminSledge.com if you want your autographed book. And that, again, goes right to you. Um, and, I could, I could uh, listen to these stories for hours. I could no, listen to these stories maybe, for hours. Listen, hours. The thing is, is uh, we, we got to maybe we, try and tee them up to get them on again, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, no, we're 100%. Can we have you on again? There's people that are saying that they want you to come on again. Um, for sure. Maybe in a we couple months. We can even months. talk geopolitics and, and the world. like 100%. And stuff like that. So. Um, That's crazy. You know, I just want to end this uh, uh, sledge, uh, and I say this to JJ all the time. I love you, man. I love everything about you guys. I I love the vets. I will do anything for a vet. I will work my ass off and pay more tax for as long as if I knew it went to a vet. Um, thank you for all that you do. Um, it's not lost on any of us here. And uh, everyone that's watching, this is why you buy a poppy, you know? This is why you buy a poppy uh, up this in Canada. This is why you buy the book. Buy the book and, and read why it. You buy and experience the book. it. Experience it. That's what I'd say. Yeah, and I'd so, love to hear. I love to hear from my readers. So, like, you can find me on all my social media channels. You can drop me a line at uh, on my website. <laughs> there's a contact form. I, I legit like. Uh, I, I like to. I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, I'm too too big for whatever. I like I, I want to connect with people because I again I, I would rather be the honest, authentic person um, that allows that and and has that opportunity to connect with people because you know all of us go through struggles in life. It's just we we deal with them differently or they're similar yet different. So I realize like my experience is unique, but our experiences as humans are not unique. My my word for it well, is not love. Stay on Mikey. after we we got to wrap this up, but because yeah. <laughs> but stay on after our our link will be live. Like we can chat, and I want to know what rookie has to say because you know rookie without rookie we wouldn't have a podcast, we wouldn't have anything. So thank you, rookie. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you to our sponsors, Brand Boulevard, Bondo. Head, take us out. My word for you is not love; it's respect for what you've done and what you're continuing to do with the your fellow men. So well, I appreciate you guys' support. It means a lot. Help us help you stay informed. Out. Ciao.
looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man podcast. Join me, host Mike C., as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain App, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. Hey, 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 hey. Produced by Crier Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. 